And that's the joke of the show. <laughs> Ding. Ding. <laughs> Welcome to the Kindred Spirit Podcast, a program completely dedicated to the board game Spirit Island. On this show, we examine and discuss every aspect of the game, whether they be general tips, in-depth strategies, or silly shenanigans. Today, we're going to learn a lot about the game's development and the considerations that have happened behind the scenes, because we have the lead developer, Ted Vesnes, on the show today. Ted, welcome to the show. Hey, Ted! Hey! Hey! Let's begin. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Hey! Hey! A, a hey. fun interview with Ted. I'm excited for this. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. <laughs> he is too. Right on. <laughs> I can hear his excitement. Effervescing <laughs> <laughs> off of the screen. He here, said, yeah. "Yes, let's do this." <laughs> I must apologize right off the bat. I'm coming off of a little bit of a cold. I'm a little congested here, but no worries. I will survive. You can turn to Batman. <laughs> I'm Batman. <laughs> Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> Only if Batman sniffles occasionally. Sometimes. Well, we're all human, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Real men cry. Batman and his trusty sidekick sniffles. <laughs> He's too rich to have that kind of problem. So yeah, I may be blowing my nose here, but forgive me. That's something you'll just have to put up with. I don't like it either. All right. So Ted, let's start this interview off with a fun question. We all love the card cast down into the briny deep. Oh, Jesus. Go over the throat. You love that card. It's nothing more fun than picking up your board yeah. game throwing it across the room and being like, I'm allowed to do that, so. And then I have to pick up the town piece and be like, that's one fear, that's so much fear. for the whole, like, well, hi, thanks for dance. coming to the show, so glad you can be here. Nope. <laughs> you all looked at me funny. I said it's purple. I, I will commence. You funny. Go for the throat. <laughs> This is one of my favorite cards in any game at all, actually. Oh. So here's how the card came to be. We were kind of just exploring the design space of like, what could we do for minor and major powers in Spirit Island? And we were just listing through like, what are all of the different things that a power card can do? It's kind of like defining the palette of paints that a painter has to work with. So in a board game, there's a mechanical palette. You can do things like you can move invaders, you can do damage, you can do fear, you can move to Han, all these sort of things. And so I was listing things that you could do. And I'm like, you could destroy invaders. And I'm like, you could destroy an entire board. Suggested this as a joke. <laughs> I did not mean it seriously that you could just destroy a board. Because why would you destroy a board, right? Because if you destroy right. a board, it removes all of the game balance, right? The game balance is like one board per player. And so if you remove a board, all that stuff gets screwed up and all this stuff. So I'm like, oh, ha, ha, ha. yeah, okay. Anyway, so I'll come back a week later. And Eric has put this power in the major power deck. It says, destroy a board. <laughs> like, what have you done? <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> He's like, we'll just make a nine energy. No one will get it. <laughs> yeah. And so I think this was actually before we did our like giant resetting of energy. So it was like 30 energy or something. Oh, goodness. Like what? Because <laughs> it's got like three times as much energy as what was currently printed on them. But it was like dealing with like counting out 30 little bits was a pain. Well, and so like we just shrunk the entire range of power cost to be between zero and 10, which is totally a good choice. And then Briny Deep was 10. And we did a bit of testing with it. And we're like, I'm not sure if this is even, pra 
practical? Is this too good? And anyway, so late in development, it turns out that it was a little too easy for Ocean to pull off. And I think a little too hard for pretty much any other spirit. And so the threshold got changed to have two sun on it. Hmm. And I think it had three moon and that threshold got changed to two moon as well. So it ended up being like four water, four earth, two sun, two moon, I believe. It was like the final thing that it ended up at. But we tested some different thresholds to try and get it to work at different levels. I will say it does bother me that the card is never worth using if you aren't hitting the threshold. <laughs> like, <laughs> no one would look at this and be like, nine energy to detonate one land Sign me up. Right? Like, <laughs> Just have a control spirit, Ted. Yeah. <laughs> Finer, like, please. <laughs> yeah, I do wish it was like a little practical to use the non-thresholded version as well. But yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. One of our friends was playing it and thought he was going to blow up the whole board and then ended up missing one element. Just as he's playing it, he's like, oh, wait, no. And he ended oh, up Tim, blowing yeah. One, one land with one explorer on it for yeah. nine energy. No, no, no. He didn't read the targeting <laughs> restriction that had to be a coastal land. Oh, that's what it was. So we were grouping Talked up. about optimum value for <laughs> We grouped up everything in like Inland Mountain, and there's one explorer and on a coastal land. That's just flexing your wealth on the bad guys. Like, I'm going to spend nine energy on this one, one explorer. explorer. Just like, yeah. So he was playing as keeper. <laughs> I love that that card came about as the result of a joke. Love it. I love it. One of the things that's really important in board games is that it creates memorable moments and stories. Oh, yeah. Yes. And this card makes memories like nothing else. Hmm. It does. I'll I bet most it. of our listeners have some sort of memory attached to that card. Even if it's just reading it for the first time, if you've never played it. Seriously. <laughs> like, you're like, wait, what? 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 Is that say what I think it said? Board? <laughs> <laughs> So, Ted, you seem pretty fun. Tell us a little no. bit more. Well, I mean, he's going to like he's a fun guy. throw a joke out there, start a whole entire awesome card. But tell us a little bit more about yourself and maybe like what's your history with board gaming and how you met Eric? Yeah. So I've been playing board games basically for my entire life. But I don't think I started doing the more traditional board gaming as it's known in a modern context until I was in college or so. And so I got introduced to some board games like Settlers of Catan, which is very common and well known as like a thing that gets people into board gaming and a few other things. So Robo Rally, mm. I played some of that and a crayon rails game called Iron Dragon was like the first like real games that I ended up playing. Okay, so then probably after I just started board gaming, my wife and I decided for Christmas one year, the only thing we were going to put on our Christmas shopping list of like, what do we want to get for gifts was board games. We're like, we're tired of getting stuff we don't want. So we put like 20 board games <laughs> on a list, picked at random and basically told people, here's what we're interested in this year. Some of our relatives are like, I don't know how to engage with this. And others are like, <laughs> have these pile of games. And it was the best Christmas ever. Like not every game we got was good, but we got some really good ones. And that kind of like hooked us into that. And then from there, we started running a local board game group just so we'd have more people to play them with over time. Yeah. So as far as how I met Eric, this dates back to one of the earliest bits of game design and development that I did. There is a classic Avalon Hill board game called Titan. I don't know if you've heard of it. It is tagged as the fantasy monster slugathon 
for two to six players, taking two to 12 hours. What? Wait, how many? It sounded like he said 12. (laughs) Two to 12 hours is what it says on the box. And it is a behemoth of 1970s development. (laughs) This game actually was one of the things that made Magic the Gathering spike in popularity in board game groups at Carnegie Mellon University because there was a Titan group. And whenever two people got involved in a combat, they had to like send all of their troops to a mini board where they fought a battle for 30 minutes. And the other four people in the game had nothing to do. So they started playing Magic the Gathering. And then many of those people went on to be developers of Magic the Gathering, including Eric Lauer and Randy Bueller and a couple other people from that group as well. So anyway, so that's Titan. It is an epic experience. And I'm like, I love everything about this game, except for the 12 hour time limit and player elimination. Like second place in Titan is the first person to lose because you get to do something with the rest of your time and everyone else is like playing the game. (laughs) Yeah. Suckers. Yeah, basically. They're trapped. can't leave. <laughs> so I wanted to build a game that had a lot of the cool mechanics of Titan where you'd like roll a whole bunch of dice and fight my monsters against your monsters and things like that, but didn't have player elimination and could finish in a much more reasonable, let's say two to three hours. Mm. And so I had a game design for this and a friend of mine was just taking it around for testing and he took it to a local game shop and Eric Royce was there and tried out the version of this game. It has incidentally never been published and I think unlikely it ever will be but maybe someday eric basically said this is a cool game my friend was a cool guy and my friend invited eric to my local board gaming and that's how i first met eric that's so cool yeah yeah Wow. Just by chance. Yeah, it was pure chance. You still like have that board game, you know, tucked away up in the attic or I do. The pathwise? No. (laughs) We'll get to that later. I still have it. I got to the point where I came up with a really good, compelling combat mechanic, but everything else around the game of like, how do I actually get creatures and how do I decide when I'm fighting and things like that? Basically, it wasn't really landing right, and I needed to find a way to crack that. So it's kind of just been on the shelf for several years now, and maybe someday I'll crack the code for that. But I have a lot of other things I'm working on right now, not the least of which is a bunch of Spirit Island stuff. So (laughs) it kind of gets back burner. (laughs) That makes sense. Wow, you guys bonded over board games, but like through a game that you created and now you're creating board games together. It's a cool story. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. So you were part of creating that one that never kind of came about. What other games have you been a part of? Like, have they all been board games? Have any of them been video games? Ever dipped your toes in those waters? Yeah, so a couple different things, mostly board games. I have done a bunch more playtesting than I have done design and development. So Innovation is mm. a popular, yeah, it's a, a Carl Chodick game, mm-hmm. the same person who did Glory to Rome. So I did a whole bunch of playtesting for Innovation and some of his other later stuff from Esmati Games. And additionally, let's see what else. I also did playtesting for the Lord of the Rings card game uh, that Decipher put out in the early 2000s or so. I did a whole bunch of work on that. And let's see, I also did video game development for the old Puzzle Pirates MMO in Days of Yore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was really interesting and fun getting to do video game design. What I realized is that I didn't want it to be my day job, but I really like game design as a hobby. The other thing that I really appreciate about 
about board game design over video game design is that like most of what you're doing, if you're actually a video game designer, is a lot of like writing code or debugging, like why is this thing not working? And it's very little of the actual getting in touch with the game itself. Mm. Whereas if you want to make a change for a game, you might have to like cross out a two and turn it to a three, but you don't have to recompile some code. You don't have to worry about someone else making a change that breaks everything. Yeah. And so like the iteration cycles can be a lot faster for it. That makes sense. Yeah. She feels very much about your response. Mm. A lot of feels. I thought it was fascinating. It was cool. Especially I appreciate your good feelings, Laura. Well, especially the bit about the difference between board game and video game, because I think a lot of us who like board games also do enjoy video games. And we like like the puzzle and the fighting aspects of the video games. And they're generally easier to play as one person. You don't have to set it up. Yeah. But I never considered mm-hmm. the playtesting aspect of it and how hard that is to change a video game and tweak things. And maybe that's why a lot of video games come out and there's like bits of them that are really, really crappy because it's really hard. Yeah. Call of Duty Vanguard. Oh. <laughs> Battlefield 2042. Battlefield 2042. <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot of effort to make a good video game. Oh, my word. Yeah. For what it's worth, though, I did do some old school video game mod design for Quake 3, including like a very early, basically predecessor to Team Fortress 2. Yeah. Sort of what? Like yeah. Team B Team Combat called Art of War, which got a very small fan following a long time ago. And some other stuff. Like I wrote some first person shooter AI for Quake as well which was super challenging mm-hmm. really interesting i don't know if it was worth the time but i learned a lot from doing it but that's a little less in the game design end of things and a little more in the like trying to instruct a computer how a human would play a game mm-hmm. it's a different sort of exercise but it was interesting to do mm-hmm. that's good yeah i think one of the things i've realized when i think about video games versus board games is that there's a growing community of solo play board gamers but there's not as many as there are just like general two plus player board gamers. Mm. But when you think about video games, there's a huge ton, a vastly large amount of games that people play that are effectively single player. Like every Legend of Zelda game ever, mm-hmm. with maybe one or two exceptions, has been single player. Or like any sort of Mario platformer, single player. All of these games that have like really interesting storylines to them are just like one person there. I think it's really interesting how much video games has been able to do a good job of single player and it's a lot harder for board games. Mm. That's true. That's a good point. In the past, you've gone on the record saying how much you hate cooperative games. Why is that? I wouldn't exactly say that I hate them, but it's more that there's a certain style of cooperative game that I never really liked or appreciated that much. And so let me give you a simple example of like what I'm going to call like this cliche cooperative video game from early 2010. We'll call it like Lost in the Wilderness. And you and your team of like two to five friends are lost in the wilderness and you have to get out of it. There's like five actions you can take, like forage for food, repair stuff, search for information, something like that. And there's five roles in the game. Everyone has a special power and each special power makes them one better at one of those five actions. And on each turn, everyone takes one action. Is this Forbidden Island? Are you just talking about Forbidden Island? (laughs) Pandemic, very similar to this. Yeah. Flashpoint, very similar to this. There's a whole bunch of games that have the same layout. And you end up in the situation where on each person's turn, they have to take one action. And everyone else at the table is waiting for them to figure out what action they should take. 
And the action is probably the one action they're better at, right? Like, come on, Tom, we all need food and you're better at finding food. Why don't you press the food button? Because it's not <laughs> going to be as good if I press the food button. I'm going to press the repair button on my turn, right? You have the situation where I have literally nothing to do on someone else's turn except mm. for think about what they should do. And it's mm. usually pretty obvious what they should do. And then you start telling them what to right. do and quarterbacking. Stop quarterbacking, Laura. And if you have a cooperative of game with this sort of dynamic, you can tell people what to do, which will make the game faster and in some sense less cooperative. Or you can just sit there and wait for them to figure out that Tom should press the food button, right? <laughs> So this kind of like ties into this big question of like alpha gaming, of like someone telling other players what to do. And I feel like this is kind of a two-part problem where... Laura, please listen to this next bit. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> like there's this question of if someone at the table is telling everyone else what to do, is that the game's fault or the player's fault? And I mean, it can be a little bit of both. Mm. Sometimes the board game design, such as Lost in the Wilderness, <laughs> makes it very obvious what someone should do to at least one player. And that design encourages that player to tell everyone else what to do. But there are other designs where this is not the case, where someone will still try and tell everyone what to do. Mm -hmm. So a good rule of thumb is if the alpha gamer causes the game to be played faster as a result of them saying what to do, then mm -hmm. the choices were probably pretty obvious. And that's an issue with the game design. Oh. The game should have given people more interesting choices. If the alpha gamer is causing the game to get played slower, possibly with a higher chance of winning, but it's actually slowing everything down, then that means there's too much information for this person to handle at a normal rate. And they're trying to get a bunch of information and think of everyone's optimal moves for them. And that's a player situation. Right. That's a situation where the player needs to relax and trust other people to handle all of their problems. Maybe not the same way that they would have, maybe not as efficiently, but trust that it will be okay. Yeah. I feel like Forbidden Island is definitely that one where you're like, you move here, you move here, you move there. Boom. We've got it. Yeah. Let's get to let's the helicopter. On. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So what were your first thoughts when Eric came to you with Spirit Island? And why was this game so different from others in the genre? Yeah. Okay. So around this time, Eric, I think, had three different designs that he was working on and he was trying to decide which one to do. So one of them was Spirit Island. Another, I think, ended up being For Science. Mm -hmm. And the third one hasn't been published. Oh. Don't quote me on that. I think it was For Science. And the thing that really attracted me to Spirit Island is that it was trying to solve a lot of the problems that the cooperative games of the day had. It was this idea that everyone was genuinely cooperating, right? Like you have this situation where because they have a highly asymmetric position, everyone has their own set of strengths and weaknesses, which mesh together well in some ways and maybe not so in other ways, that it actually feels like you're part of a team in a way that like someone's good at foraging for food and someone's good for repairing because that's so heavily tied to the mechanical direction of the game. It doesn't give people the opportunity to show how they relate to who they are in the game. And so I felt like there was a lot of good emotional resonance in there. It's the sort of thing that I could see people getting excited about. The other thing that was really exciting to me is like, I love toys and I'm defining toy as a technical term. A toy is any effect or power or something that you have access to in a game that other people don't. It's your own special thing. And all sorts of games have toys. Like I get this power up or this upgrade or this special artifact that gives me a special rule. 
when you have these sorts of things, you have a lot of room for creative direction and it creates situations where you can like mix and match like this toy combos with that other toy to create some sort of like fun strategy or tactics or things like that. I felt like there was a lot of room for really interesting tactical depth. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I saw the potential for a game that people could play where they could get really immersed in it and really excited about the strategies that they took. They could improvise new things on the fly in a way that I hadn't seen a game that could do it before. So from the very beginning, it looked like a really good game. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked his approach to countering alpha gaming, and I think he's probably Mm -hmm. done it the best that I've seen any cooperative game do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the original rule for this game was you are not allowed to use any sort of human language to communicate with the other players. That was like diversity of spirit. Diversity of spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, that did not last very long. (laughs) Well, some of the funnest parts of the game for us, our group, is discussing in the growth phase what to do. And still providing room for personal growth for alpha gamers when you have a new person playing and you're like, well, I would do trop track of, I don't know, lightning or whatever, and you should probably play this as your opening hand because the Spirit Island community decided this is your best idea. And they're like, I'm going to do this thing. And you're like, that's a dumb idea. But you have to like just kind of let them do yeah, it. Yeah. When you have so many variables in play, yeah, who they're playing as, who against, who with, where they literally are physically, what cards they currently have in hand versus discard, or like just how they prefer to play the character. I mean, there's yeah. just so many variables that it's like, yeah, they can ask for advice. I could tell them what I might do but that's because they asked me i'm not going to be like i know what you should do definitively here you know so i actually really agree with that yeah 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 i mean the game is balanced such that especially at lower difficulties people can make catastrophic mistakes (laughs) on a semi-regular basis and still win right like you don't have to follow something optimal reclaim loop (laughs) yeah sure like and that's intentional right that like yeah Players should feel like the choices they're making matter and advance the game in a positive way, but it doesn't have to be the best way of doing that. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. even really have to be in line with what was intended as long as they're satisfied with how they go about it. Mm -hmm. I feel like when I play with new players or people who are a little lost, I very seldom say you should do this sort of a thing as far as like what they mechanically should do. And more often, I'll try and talk about how they should think about that. Like, oh, lightning can make all of its powers fast. Is there something you can do ahead of time? Or if you can't solve it this slow phase, can you handle it next turn's fast phase? Things like that. Just like, how can you use that to your advantage? Mm. I feel like the yeah. biggest thing for a new person is blight. Boy, are they scared of blight. Even if the island's still healthy, well, they're just like, no, 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 one well, blight. That's a fair assessment. They were told that that's literally a loss condition. True. So I'm yeah. never surprised or I'm not like, oh, come on, man. You're not being, you know, I understand open-minded it just... enough. They were told that we will lose the game if enough of that gets on the board. So it's fair, in my opinion, to see them go... <laughs> You know, like, yeah, I mean, I get that, like, mechanically, in some sense, like, blight is a resource per se, which is to say, you can buy time by paying blight. 
right? And you can turn that time into solving other problems, which is hopefully solving more Blight. But like at its core though, thematically, what I think Blight is about is not about viewing it as a resource, but acceptance, which is that mm. players need to accept that they can't solve all the problems. At a high enough difficulty, you definitely can't solve all the problems yeah. right away. And you need to be okay with that, right? Like some of this is a bit of a life lesson. You can't have everything you want. Mm. And sometimes you have to triage. Sometimes you need to take something painful in the short term to get something better in the long term. And sometimes short term things are worth solving, right? Like if you're playing Vital Strengths of the Earth, playing a Year of Perfect Stillness on turn two or three to prevent a Ravage or a build that'll turn into a bad Ravage can totally be worth it sometimes, but not all the time. You just got to decide. Mm, I like that. Spirit Island giving us good life lessons. Yeah. I love this game. <laughs> <Deep>. <laughs> Now, you are the lead developer of Spirit Island, and Eric is the designer for it. Many times I've heard people say, what's the difference between designer and developer? Because those terms sound very similar, yet they are not identical. So, if you'd be so kind to explain to our audience, what is the difference between those two terms? Yeah, yeah. This is a good question. So... I would put this as analogous to the difference between an author and an editor. A designer is a lot like an author, where it's their work, their creation. They're making a thing that is going to tell a story and that people are going to be engaging with and be excited about. And the editor's job is to make sure that the author's vision comes across in a way that is received well and understood by people. The editor's job is looking for like plot holes, things that don't add up. Why didn't this character do this thing? Or looking for better ways of expressing this plot point. It's like, I feel like this moment would be more meaningful if it happened in chapter three instead of chapter eight, because it would create a certain sort of buildup, that sort of thing. But ultimately, the editor's job is about making sure the author's vision comes to life in a way that the author is really happy with and that the audience engages with. So my job as a developer is an awful lot like that, where Eric has this vision for it's like, I want this spirit to be a spirit of rock or of a volcano and so on. And I'm like, okay, well, you have all these mechanics that are doing it. And here's how we can do a better job of getting that across. It is worth noting that I think in the same way that people are more connected with authors than editors, they also are a little more connected with designers than developers, right? So like most people know that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings. Hey. Who edited Lord of the Rings? Uh, Leonard McCoy. <laughs> that no, is not correct. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong answer. But it was fast. I actually spent some time looking this question up because I was very curious and I could not find an answer. I basically found the name of Tolkien's publishing house, and it was probably someone who worked at that publishing house. And who knows? I do know that his son, Christopher Tolkien, edited some of his later manuscripts, but I don't think Christopher Tolkien was even old enough to edit The Hobbit, for example. Who knows? It is not a particularly glamorous job, but it does matter a lot. Mm. No joke, the author-editor comparison is probably the smoothest and best analogy I've heard mm. for those two terms. I'm totally going to use it in the future. Don't worry, I'll copyright you and send you a quarter every time I do. <laughs> 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 That's like the best, most... I don't need your quarters. <laughs> oh, cool. 
I'll keep them. <laughs> so as a developer, do you get to come up with any spirits in the new expansions? Or are all of the spirits Eric's ideas that you guys then will just work out? Well, spreading rot was from a convention, so. With a group of ideas. <laughs> Make spreading rot real! Make spreading rot real! Please, Ted! I still got uh, that uh, sign. I know it'll never happen. But... I have a good story on spreading rot, which I will get to in a bit. <laughs> Let me answer the first question of like, how much design stuff do I do? So Eric's a game designer, but he's also in very much, in a very real sense, an author in that he's created this fictional universe that Spirit Island resides in. And there's a culture of Dahan, like multiple cultures, because not all Dahan tribes are the same. And then all of these spirits that go into the lore are meaningful. And they're like, they're a thing that he has created in his mind. And it needs to feel like it's part of his world. The back panel, the lore, does he write all that out? Is that his yeah. writing when you're reading the spirit panel? That's his writing. Wow. Yeah. The play style stuff is sometimes other developer stuff, but he writes the lore. Okay. And the thing is me just coming up with a spirit out of fabric that says like, oh, here's a cool thing is a bit like asking Tolkien to add a new Hobbit to his Lord of the Rings books. Even if that Hobbit would make perfect sense and have really good comic relief or whatever, it's not part of his world and his vision. But on the flip side, there are certainly situations where I've been like, this is sort of like a hole for a certain type of spirit that's missing. We should really have this. And this actually happened in Jagged Earth development, where I'm like, Eric, it's a tropical island. There are monsoons. Why do we not have a rain spirit? <gasps> and downpour! 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 Yeah, so that's where downpour came from. I remember reading that quote from the Kickstarter thing. Yeah, I'm like, why do we not have a rain spirit? And so he made a rain spirit, and this rain spirit was awesome. That repeating mechanic is so cool with downpour. That was actually the original mechanic that he had. There was a whole bunch of like trickiness around balance testing just to get things right. And we ended up experimenting with a couple other mechanics instead, but none of them worked as well as the repeat. And so we're like, nope, it has to be the repeat. It has to be repeat by paying just the cost of the power card. And it has to be like an unlimited number of repeats bounded only by water was kind of what we ended up in. There were a bunch of discussions about whether it should be allowed to repeat spirit targeting powers. And early on this question of how much energy should you get back if you don't use a repeat? Because the math says you should get two energy back, but it turns out that was too good. So you get gift of proliferation. You get gift of proliferation. Gift of proliferation. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason you can't repeat that either. <laughs> Some of it is also just mechanical. It's like the spirit is raining down on the island in this place and in that place. And spirit targeting powers are a bit more metaphysical mm. in that sense, and that they're not really happening in a land, they're happening to a thing. And it's harder to have the concept of the spirit is raining more of this metaphysical gifting in some way. Yeah. Someone said, make spreading rot real. Yes. All right, talk and spreading rot. I had known well in advance that Eric was going to do a fan designed apocrypha spirit mm -hmm. at some sort of convention. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't known when that was going to happen. And then like COVID kind of just screwed up the timelines for all this thing. Anyway, I hear through work channels some year and a half later or whatever, that someone wants to print out a new fan spirit mm -hmm. for Spirit Island. And like, I don't look at all the fan spirits, but I look at some of them. So I'm like, oh, okay, sure. let me take a look at this. And I looked over Spreading Rot and I thought, hey, there's actually some good ideas in here. <laughs> this thing is totally busted. <laughs> and I mean, like... 
massive <laughs> nerfs and a serious amount of complexity trimming to be publishable, <laughs> but I think we could actually make it work, <gasps> which is in contrast to virtually every other fan spirit that I've seen. They're all wind spirits. All of them are wind spirits, Ted. They're like, another wind spirit! <laughs> and then you got those ice spirit players. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make an iceberg spirit. Elsa. Elsa. You can't have ice in the tropics! It's a tropical island! We had like three wind spirits planned for Jag earth and they all got cut mm. oh okay so here's the thing about spreading rot like when i saw it i'm like oh maybe we could publish it i'm like oh Eric was part of this. And when I say we could publish, I mean, it would be possible to develop it to the stage that it would have the same quality standards as an existing published spirit. Right. So then I saw, oh, Eric designed this. I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense because this looks an awful lot like some of the very rough early handoffs I will get from spirits mm -hmm. from Eric anyway. If he takes more time with them, then they tend to get more polished. Oh, I had one other thing I wanted to add about stuff I get to design. Oh, yeah. So I mentioned a little bit that sometimes I'll just give an idea to Eric, like, hey, we need a rain spirit. There are some situations where we just need something really fast. So late in Jagged Earth development, we realized that none of the minor powers added light. And we're like, so okay. we have a hole filling problem. We should probably have one power that does this. And we had a couple different ideas, but one of the ones that I came up with was like, what if we just added five tokens and a blight? Just five tokens. <laughs> <laughs> dire metamorphosis. Ryan, say it. <laughs> yep. And that turned into dire metamorphosis. <laughs> yeah. It's quite an experience as far as minor powers go. So just for people listening at home, the final version of dire metamorphosis is a one cost power card with four elements. It does one damage, one damage to the Han, and then you add a wilds, a disease, a strife, a beast, a badlands, and a blight. <laughs> Just like one of everything. All the tokens. It's a buffet. <laughs> yeah, just like, and it's one of those things I looked at it and I'm like, I have no idea what this should cost. Because like all these tokens are good, but a lot of their effects cancel each other out in various mm. ways. Like you add a wilds to a land, but it had invaders in it, but there probably won't be so much more because there's a disease there. And if they ravage, then the strife will go away. It's like, I have no idea, but we played it and one felt about right. And there was some really good playtester feedback where someone said, every time I play this power card, I feel like the power rangers are coming to save me hey. <laughs> i found that lure loves that card <laughs> or if you ever pull pent-up calamity and you're like oh, oh all these do damage <laughs> can't remove the badlands but that's okay that's okay that was our one big fear was badlands with me and ryan yeah, i remember i was so nervous when i found out that dahan could get damaged from it i don't know why just hearing about it i was just so skeptical and afraid that i would just accidentally kill dahan on accident i was like oh no well we love our dahan but yeah. then i found out it wasn't nearly as bad as i was fearing and it turns out to be awesome yeah it's a great addition yeah. i still ignore it mostly. i had a 180 like wholesale oh i love badlands i will say the biggest problem with Badlands is the fact that a single Dahan no longer kills a single ravaging explorer in a land with Badlands anymore. Mm. That is a meaningful thing to watch out for. Something that we've also noticed in our initial development is that like we think Badlands may have been just very slightly undercosted, which means that like powers are slightly better by like a fraction of an energy, not wildly out of balance, but just like a little bit here and there. But it's also mitigated by the fact that we think a lot of the slow powers that deal one damage are slightly overcosted, hmm. such as perhaps 
Raging Storm. <laughs> <laughs> you think? So- <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Woo, sorry, where'd that come from? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Raging Storm should probably cost like two energy or possibly three energy and have some fear attached. But one of the things is when you're looking at the energy mix of power cards among a spirit's unique set, it is not enough to have all of the uniques have energy costs that are appropriate to their effects. You need to make sure that the total energy cost of the set is well positioned for the energy income that the spirit has access to Mm -hmm. as well. So this is one of the things that I didn't particularly love with Vital Strength of the Earth, which is the fact that even though it has a lot of energy, all of its uniques are really expensive. Oof, mm. pricey. It's actually a little harder to pivot into major powers as a result because minor powers are cheap and major powers are expensive. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so you're talking about things you learned, things you wish you would have done differently. What are things the development team learned from designing the base game that you would eventually improve on developing Jagged Earth? And what did you learn from Jagged Earth just now? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good question. Let me start off with a bit of a caveat of like, what did I learn? What did I learn sounds an awful lot like, what would I do differently if we could print it again? I'm trying to pin you in a corner here. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) But that's kind of related to this question of like, what would a second edition Spirit Island look like? Mm. So I want to give a caveat about second edition because this sort of thing comes up a bunch. The first thing is that officially and unofficially, we have no idea whether or not there will ever be a second edition. Mm. I pay for it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think all of us would. (laughs) So here's the thing, which is that when you're a game publishing company and you're putting a board game out there, you're not just trying to make money. You need to pay the rent of your employees. You need to help them feed their families. Hmm. And you need to make sure that any sort of project you take on is really going to be a success. And the real answer to will there ever be a second edition is will it be a financial success? Hmm. And we don't have enough information to predict that let's get a poll going if you, if you, add, <laughs> if you add miniatures people will buy it <laughs> people love minis painted as a stretch goal <laughs> A poll actually isn't helpful because one of the things you'll run into is a whole bunch of people saying, yes, I will totally buy this when it happens. And you can sometimes get like a 10% conversion rate, like 10% of the people who said they would buy a thing actually end up going off and buying it. And that can be kind of risky. If you want to know the two things that are most likely to make a second edition happen, the second most helpful thing is to buy expansions. Because if people are continuing to buy expansions and content as they come out, then that's a real indicator that maybe there's demand for a second edition. That's the second most helpful thing. The most helpful thing is to get your friends to play Spirit Island. Because when your friends play Spirit Island, they buy more copies of the base game. Mm. And a better predictor for how many second edition copies of a game will sell is how many base games of the first version have been sold and not how many expansions. So I would totally love it if there's a second edition and there's tons of things that I would love to change (laughs) and fix and tweak. Low complexity. (laughs) And Eric has his own list as well. So that said, as far as like things that we've learned, I will say from the base game, I think we've learned a lot about what resonates with players. Mm. I think the big thing that I learned is spirits that feel like they have a real mini game about them of like, I have a shtick and this is my shtick. So like rivers, like put everything in one land and then flood it. Mm-hmm. Or ocean is like, I try and drown everything or thunder speaker. I have a mobile army of Dahan and just march them across the Island to blow things up. I have a broken power card. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, So 
<laughs> okay, so if that unique power was swapped out for just a random miner with reasonable elements, I bet people would still have a really good time playing the spirit, huh? even without manifestation of power and glory. Like, try this sometime. Go through the minor power deck and find the first minor power that has exactly the same elements as manifestation of power and glory. Okay. Swap that out. Play the game. I bet you will enjoy it. We should do that. Yeah. 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 The reason that works is that the core of what makes Thunderspeaker fun is not trying to do 60 damage with Manifestation and Power and Glory. It's the fact that you get to march your army of Dahan and just like beat stick slap everything in your path. And you're using, you know, the natives of the island. It's so cool thematically. Yeah. 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 And so the spirits that have a really resonant game plan, like a way of engaging with them, are the things that players most connect with. Mm -hmm. in a really meaningful way and we tried to carry a lot of that forward into jagged earth and so you can see this a lot more like volcano has a much more strongly telegraphed plan mm. or like downpour i mean finder does as well like i mean basically all the spirits that were part of that do a much better job of telegraphing what their game plan is now, one of the other things we learned in Jagged Earth development that we did not know when we designed base set plus branch and claw is that every spirit needs to have a well-defined relationship with the invaders, with the Dahan, and ideally with other spirits, which is to say you need to understand how the spirit is trying to win the game and like what does the spirit want to do against invaders. I'm trying to think of a good example from the base game that doesn't do a great job of this. I think all the spirits are pretty thematic and paints like what you're trying to do mechanically, too. I don't know. I like the base yeah. game spirits. Okay, okay. Well, let me talk a little bit about some of the spirits that got cut in Jagged Earth <gasps> development. I can tell you that one of the spirits got cut because it was like a spirit of bounty and harvest in some way. It's mm -hmm. like the land's verdancy bringing forth food and sustenance. And it was kind of not working mechanically. Like it wasn't really interacting with the game because when players would play the spirit, they didn't have a way of trying to win the game. And when Eric and I talked over it, we decided that this spirit would not try to attack the invaders. It was not in the spirit's nature to do so. What the spirit would try to do is convert the invaders to live in a more harmonious way with the island mm. and try and bless and protect those invaders that were then being more careful and mindful of the land. And we spent huh. a bunch of time talking about like, what are the different mechanics we could use to represent this? And we eventually decided that if it was possible to do this, there was definitely not enough room in Jagged Earth for it. Okay. But it was the act of determining, here's the relationship between this spirit and the invaders that made us realize that it didn't fit into the game's framework as it had currently been pitched. And so that's why it ended up getting cut. Maybe someday we'll bring it back, but it seems like a tricky thing to design when the whole minor power deck is, here's how I damage things in yeah. various ways. It wouldn't be strife. Like, I'm trying to figure out what you would use mechanically for the spirit. Is it like perfect stillness kind of? Would you just like have them skip actions? So there's like a couple different ways that you can represent invaders living more harmoniously with the land. So one is you can replace them with the Han. That's not great, though, because when a piece is replaced with the Han, that means the invaders, they're not just fighting alongside the Dahan. They have taken up the cultural identity as being Dahan mm -hmm. in some way, and they follow the standard traditions and practices of whatever sort of tribe of Dahan they have chosen to join. 
And this would be like presumably invaders who still live in their towns and cities, but in ways that aren't like slash and burn farming and keeping the actual impact of what they're doing on the soil to a much more reasonable level. Mm -hmm. Another thing you can do is you can remove invaders which is a way of thematically saying the invaders are still here in this land, but they don't affect it in any way. So it's effectively like they're not here. So you could do a remove in that case. Okay. You could do special tokens or markers that identify this invader is different from other invaders. It's a converted invader. But then you have this whole game component problem where new invader pieces have to come to work with the spirit in a different color, which is cost prohibitive. <laughs> or a whole bunch of tokens, which is also cost prohibitive. And then even when you do that, you have to define all of the rules for what does a converted invader do here. So super interesting problem. I don't don't think there's a very simple low complexity solution to it so that's why i got punted i think the idea of it if it gets pushed through that'd be really cool but yeah i guess it's tricky to figure out how i also like the idea of it there's a lot of ideas that i like more than this one. Oh, <laughs> oh. as far as what's going to make people excited about upcoming content and then as far as what i've learned on the most recent bit of expansion design mm -hmm. The two big lessons out of that. The first lesson is that it is not enough for spirits to have an interesting gameplay loop that you can kind of understand. The way spirits are interacting with the game needs to interact with the pieces on the board in a very physical, regular manner mm -hmm. to be really evocative. And I feel like this is one of the places that Shifting Memory of Ages falls flat, where its minigame is about gaining major powers and playing big stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's not really tied to any one place of the board. It's just like a more fun version of Keeper, where you get a bunch of energy and you play a bunch of big stuff, and that's kind of enjoyable, but it doesn't have the same resonance to it as someone playing trickster who's like i'm gonna slot machine random lands and see what comes out <laughs> which yeah it really doesn't they're both kind of random spirits but i don't know they're i guess like a different form of randomness yeah 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 and i think because i thought shifting memory would be really fun to just be like do major powers but you're right if there wasn't that thematicness tied to it i mean i think there's still theme there of like just it, being it, a like old spiritness okay yeah, um, yeah. Like, but I, so much of who you are is that spirit is what you found hmm. in the deck yeah, yeah and that's just the deck and your hand and Which can be not fun. So much like changing stuff yeah. on the board. Okay. Yeah, it's fun, yeah. but it's just it's not the it's... same as marching your army around or making a volcano. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little different. Now there are some exceptions to this. Like Starlight is a spirit whose strategy is not at all about plastic on the board, mm -hmm. but so much of what we give players in Starlight is this like design your own spirit angle, and then eventually you get locked into here are some effects that are going to change the board in some ways. Like maybe you do damage or remove a blight or push some. Around, that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. But I think that works explicitly because the growth minigame is so compelling in a way that shifting memories is not quite as compelling. And so something I've been really looking out for is making sure that in addition to every spirit having a fun gameplay loop that has a relationship with invaders, okay. the spirit also needs to have their mechanics tied to the board in some way, unless there's a really good reason not for it. Mm. That was one lesson we've learned from the most recent design. The other lesson we've learned is some amount of like thinking about complexity and telegraphing of a spirit's strategy. So every spirit gets a toolbox of tools. Yeah. Some spirits have a sorted toolbox and others have a big 
mess of hammers and screwdrivers and you can't ever find what you're looking for and you're sure this is useful somehow. So like Ocean's Hungry Grasp has a very sorted toolbox. You look at all those power cards and you know what you do. Like, I'm going to drown two explorers in the ocean. I'm going to defend that land for four. You can just see what this is supposed to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then you look at a toolbox like many mines and you have all of these like useful things, but it's not clear how to best get value from them. And I feel like a lot of what makes a spirit feel high complexity versus medium complexity is how well it's telegraphed. How do you just use your cards in a way that's meaningful? Okay. I think this is one of the things that has really hurt shadows. Don't say it. (laughs) I love shadows. As far as talking about design things that I wish we could change for shadows, the fact that shadows has multiple effectively range zero power cards telegraphs to the player that they want their presence on top of invaders. And then that means you're going to lose presence to Blight unless you use your special rule in some way, or you have a card that downgrades a town to an explorer, but you generally only have towns and lands where you had explorers in the first place. So the fact that the land then has two explorers afterwards means it's still going to Blight on Ravage, so it's not fixing a problem. And it has all these tools that are fairly costed, but it doesn't tell the player, here's how you use this to advance your game plan. And I think that makes it really tricky for players to grapple with where you might not like Raging Storm at an energy cost of three, but you can figure out if you play that in a land with only explorers, then they're all going to die. It's worth it. Right? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Especially against France. It's not rocket science figuring that one out. Yeah. So you've learned all of that from previous iterations. So one thing we wondered about when you first came up with the game, where did elements come from? Were those part of Eric's idea for the game, like right from the get? Did they come in like midway through? How did those show up and where from? Oh, yeah. So I actually remember this story. I was standing in Eric's living room and (laughs) this was actually pretty early on in development. It's definitely in the first year, maybe first couple of months. He's like, I realize this game needs elements in some way to like evoke that this is an earth spirit or this is a water spirit. Like, what do you think we could do for that? And I thought about it for five minutes. (laughs) And then I said, basically, what elements are right now? I'm like, every minor power has elements on it. And every major power is triggered by having a set of elements. Oh. So that was the original pitch, which took me like five minutes to come up with. It is not exactly what we have right now Mm -mm. for two reasons. One, I didn't have the idea that major powers would have energy costs. I thought they would just be element thresholds that you have to meet. Okay. Kind of like innate. Yeah. And I did not think that major powers would have elements on them because that didn't make any sense if they were triggered by the elements. And I didn't have the idea of innate powers at all, which it turns out was a really great idea. And so like a week later, Eric comes back with the minor power deck that has all the elements on it and some spirits that now have innate powers. Innate powers are actually really important for kind of elementally reinforcing what a spirit is about. It's like, you can say that this feels like a rock spirit, but unless you give the player a reason to get earth element, then they're going to just draft whatever power cards have the best effect. Mm. And so those two changes together worked out just fine. With the caveat that the original set did not have eight elements, it only had six elements, we didn't have sun and moon. And those got added maybe a year later when Eric wanted like a little more more granularity, more texture to explain the elemental resonance behind an effect. Nice. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Ted, 
I heard that through the grapevine that you also like team-based video games such as Overwatch. True facts. I'm wondering if your love for those games has bled into any of the design or development for Spirit Island. Yeah, so not exactly, but there are things about both of them that I really appreciate that I think is good design lessons. So here's the thing. A typical board game these days, like a non-cooperative board game, is like kind of a free-for-all. It's like four people, everyone's trying to win for themselves. Yeah. It turns out a lot of video games, if they're not solo play, are team-based, right? So it's like, I've got six people on my team, and they go fight six people on their team. And there's a couple of reasons this works really well. Fundamentally, everyone loves winning. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds a bit simple to say, but it's important to articulate. Everyone loves winning. And when you have two teams going at each other, you win 50% of the time. That's amazing, right? If five people sit down to play a game of Scythe, you win one out of every five games. I always lose when I play Scythe, morally. (laughs) Okay, you win 0% of the time, John. (laughs) But everyone else wins 25% of the time. And so the other thing that's really good about the team dynamics is that people can find roles to play that suit their mood and suit their skills and just resonate with who they are. Their role in the game can become a form of self-expression and a way that they're expressing how they like fit in with the group. And Spirit Island has this sort of thing, right? Like there's definitely some people out there who are like, I'm only going to take all the spirits that damage all the things. Or like some people are like, I just want to play massive control or (laughs) I just want to play all sorts of like defense. You rang. It's good to know what you're good for. So like I play Overwatch. I suck at aiming. Right. And this coming from someone who didn't you design Quake? <laughs> wrote AI to play Quake, right? I did a lot of research into what makes aim look like realistic human aiming. And I figured out that I am not good at aiming at all. <laughs> But the game has characters I can play that don't need me to aim well to be useful, right? And other people are like, are you headshots all day? Go play someone who gets all those headshots. And I feel like there's room for me to pick something that suits my skills as a player Mm -hmm. in a well-designed team-based game. When you think about what spirits you play in Spirit Island... I like to use the analogy of a Dungeons and Dragons adventuring party, right? Where it's like, who are the people you're going to have? Like, you probably want like some tank, you want a healer, Mm. you want someone to do melee damage, someone to do range damage, maybe someone to do crowd control or other sort of buff effects. And there are analogies to those sorts of things among all the spirits. Like if someone wants to be the beefy fighter, you can go play Vital Strength of the Earth, or you can go play Stone, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the character and charm of the game comes from the ability to do a good job of just expressing the whole space of how players want to interact with and think about the game. I like that. Who's your main in Overwatch? You said you don't aim, so is it a healer or a tank? (laughs) Okay, so... I like Zenyatta. Yeah, okay. As far as who I play, I play a bunch of healers, Mm -hmm. a ton of Moira. Yeah, Moira doesn't have to aim. Yeah. Just throw those orbs. Yeah, Yeah, Moira doesn't really have to aim that well and is just super flexible in a lot of situations. The other thing is when you're in like crap elo like me, (laughs) the most important thing in the game by far is stay alive and do damage. And healing someone who sucks... Doesn't help your team at all, right? <laughs> I kept this Widowmaker alive who can't hit a barn. That's not helpful. 
Widowmaker's right? a sniper. So. What if, yeah, That's Widowmaker a... is like the ultimate sniper character. Yeah. So the fact that you can triage and be like, is this person doing well? I'm just going to pocket them and make sure that they stay alive. Is my whole team awful? I'm just going to do damage and get five gold medals. Yeah. Right. So I like Moira. I like Zenyatta a bunch too. I play also Lucio. So Lucio is really great for someone who doesn't have to aim a bunch because you can just run around for a while and hopefully not get hit. And ride on walls. and Yeah. 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 I said I suck at aiming, but like Zenyatta does have this thing where you just charge up orbs and fire and forget. <laughs> and I find that's pretty good. <laughs> but just like sometimes I randomly headshot someone and they die and other times I can forget about it. Yeah. And I've also been playing a bunch of damage lately. So I've been enjoying May, who is a lot more about like Trixie. I set up a wall to block people off or freeze people. So there's not a lot of aiming for that. Bastion is just like a mobile turret that just shoots things and you technically need to aim a little bit, but you can just like press a button and your Gatling when you're gun shooting will fire bullets, indefinitely, right? Yeah. Like you'll eventually hit something. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to play sometime, Ted. Oh, okay, will do. So when Spirit Island first came out, your wife posted an article to BGG titled Spirit Island Review, A Relationship Perspective. Oh, in the article, she goes on to speak about how playing this game is good for couples and that the game provides quality time. We definitely found out during COVID. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any memories that like stand out to you of like, specific times of you and your wife playing Spirit Island, especially like back before it was released in 2017? Did she help you with any of the playtesting? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we did tons of playtesting together. I think I played basically no solo games Mm. before the first version was released. So I think pretty much every game I played was with her and possibly with other people as well. So we've done enough that it is very hard to have any one particular moment from playing those games pre-base set stand out. Mm. But I do have some memories from Jagged Earth playtesting where Eric was like, we're looking into combining adversaries just as a way of increasing the difficulty level if people want that. And so... Boy, do they. (laughs) (laughs) Well, more on combining adversaries in a bit. The thing about this was, it was basically stress test it, see how high you can actually get, how challenging it's like, and if the formula feels roughly additive or like how you relate the difficulty numbers. And so we went through different levels of, I think, Brandenburg, Prussia, where we kept adding additional levels of England on top of it until we got to like difficulty 14 or so. And just for the listeners at home, this is not the most challenging games that anyone has ever done because People have done double six adversaries, usually with custom tricked out teams that abuse overpowered cards. But difficulty 14 is like no joke. Yeah. We tried a bunch of stuff as well with Dahan insurrection scenarios as well on top of mixed adversaries at high difficulty, which it turns out was very challenging as well. (laughs) So I do have some memories of those sorts of games. I think a lot of why the game is good for couples kind of comes back to the Dungeons and Dragons party analogy, where everyone has a role on the team, even if it's just a team of two people, and you want to make sure that you're meshing together well in a way that makes sense. Nothing is falling by the wayside that's being forgotten, but you're not double covering for things. It encourages really trusting the other person to do stuff. So you could spend all the time telling the other person what to do, but you probably shouldn't. You should trust that they're a competent adult to handle their own sets of problems. And I feel like a lot of the lessons you learn from learning how to 
to play well on a two-player team for Spirit Island is analogous to how to have a good, healthy relationship with people, which is like, trust people, be their partner, have their back, empower them, get them out of trouble if they're in trouble, but don't always tell them everything to do. They're an adult, things like that. That's really sweet. I feel that. Yeah. Or go for a no reclaim build and screw them all over. <laughs> Dude, no reclaim Starlight is a fun time. I will not hear it. I mean, you slept on the couch. <laughs> like, my opinion on that is that communication is really important. Oh, we communicated. And it is worth <laughs> disclosing to people in advance. Like, what you don't want to do is let someone know after the fact that you didn't have their back in a certain way that they were counting on. That seems like not the greatest communication moment. He let us know to our faces that he did not have our back. It was for the memes. I had to do it. <laughs> the things we do for me. <laughs> Although I'm sure you were hoping for it, were you expecting the game to be as successful or as popular as it has become, especially even with the solo gamer community? That's a good question. Kind of. So it was one of those things where like, it was clear that the game was going to be popular and successful. You just know when you play it that it's something special. Mm-hmm. I was not surprised that Spirit Island ended up in the top 100 board game geek games. That seemed reasonable to me. I was surprised that it was a top 20 game. That was more than I would have thought for. And I was also surprised at just how much the solo gamer community really loved the game. When we looked at initial design and development, it was pretty important to me and also to Eric that the game scaled well with player count, which Mm. is to say it should play well with one players and with four players with similar difficulty. Sorry about the blight thing. We both missed it, which (laughs) certainly had an effect. Yeah, you fixed it. No worries. You have a sympathetic audience. But we fixed it. Yep. We fixed the glitch. (laughs) And it is actually a one-player game with one spirit is about as challenging as a four-player game with four spirits to within, you know, a reasonable margin. And I think I hadn't realized how many people were out there that really wanted to play board games, but for whatever reason, had trouble getting additional people to play it. Maybe that's just not what the schedule in their life presents or maybe it's just the place that they live there aren't a bunch of other people who are interested in it like who knows what the reason is Mm -hmm. i am really really happy that this game exists for people like that i think it's really important that they have a thing like this that they can engage with that makes them excited about board gaming and i want there to be many other games like that that are good for one player as well I think it's hard because sometimes a game has a feature where it can turn into a one-player game, but it's almost like not what the game was meant to be. But Spirit Island doesn't feel that way, Mm-mm. like warped or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. So a lot of times you'll see this in competitive games where it's like, we'll create some sort of automana or an AI that you play against that simulates what another player is doing. Mm -hmm. You'll see things like that. Or in a cooperative game, there's often some form of you just play two people at the same time. It doesn't really feel like it's driving at the core desire of someone who's playing a solo game experience where it's like, I want to feel like I'm a person, like one person engaging with this thing. And I want to see if I can beat this puzzle or this challenge. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, I know there's a lot of solo gamers out there who swear by two spirits and the occasional three spirit players. And that level of just holding mental state in mind is really quite commendable. 
I don't think I would personally enjoy that. I have had to do it sometimes, like trying to play more than one spirit at the same time. But there's people out there who love it and they're good at it and they're enjoying it. People have done all 24 at once. Yeah, yeah. People should play the game the way that they enjoy and the way that brings them joy. And if that's what works for them, then they should do it. Mm -hmm. Like I kind of feel the same way about events. Like you don't like events, don't play events. You don't need to play events. You don't like a certain spirit or an adversary. That's fine. Like this blight card sucks. Get that blight card out of the deck. Let's talk about tipping point. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Outpaced. <laughs> yeah, I have feelings on all of these. So like here's the thing about tipping point, which is that for starters, <laughs> in retrospect, it was a very bad choice for the base game <laughs> blight card in particular, because it's a very negative first player experience with a blight card. Tipping point is in fact fair and balanced, but not in a way that's fun. Okay. And it is not sufficient for cards to be balanced. They have to be fun. And when you talk about a blight card, no one's really looking to a blight card for joy or excitement in the game. It is a pain point. Aid from lesser spirits. Yeah, there's some nice yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, aid from lesser spirits is overpowered. <laughs> so, right, like when I said everyone loves winning... What everyone really wants is to be slightly overpowered in a way that they're not aware of, right? Because <laughs> that's strongly correlated with winning yeah. in a way that it feels like you're working for it, even if you're not working for it quite as much. Yeah, Aid from Lesser Spirits, a little overpowered. I think it's fixable in a second edition if we ever get there. Yeah, Tipping Point is totally fair on the tin, but it is very non-interactable. It's like sometimes a spirit just loses the game, like in the very <laughs> literal sense of Fractured Days loses for everyone because they only have three presents in play or in the figurative sense where a volcano was going to detonate and they lost three presents and now their whole game plan goes down the toilet. Like these are not fun moments and mm -hmm. you end up with a bunch of other spirits where it's like, I had six presents in play and now I lose three and targeting is a little rougher for me, but otherwise it's no big deal. Mm. And tipping point punishes some spirits a lot more than others. There's also the problem that tipping point as a card is something we need to be really mindful of when designing spirits. Like we would want to be careful of another spirit that was low on presence because tipping point could just be like an auto game loss for them in a way that's no fun. Yeah. But there are thankfully a lot of other blight cards that I feel like are way more interactable. So. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. There's a bunch I don't mind or I understand or I like. So just no. right. And even memory fade, <laughs> as tough as it is, it gives you a choice. Yeah, I actually do like memory. Yeah, yeah, that matters a lot. And I think that's really important. Even if it is something that would be viewed as negative, there is still player agency to discern for yourself which of those two tough things is more negative. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I feel as if you can kind of tweak your play style around, okay, well, this is bad, but I can at least go here. Okay, maybe this turn I might do the other one. Or I don't need this card this or something. Of, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And I feel like that's the sort of thing that I want to have for events as well, which is that I feel like events should be on average totally neutral in terms of like mm. the expected value payout. But it should be in a way that gives on one end and takes away in another or gives mm. people some choice about like I get the choice of one of these two bad effects and the choice of one of these two good effects because that gives people a little bit of room to decide like how can I use this unexpected moment to further my strategy in some way yeah I do like those choice events Ted keep bringing those yeah yeah choice events are good one thing you might notice about choice events is in the base game they were all like 
one end is just pure downside. Right. And the other end is upside, but you got to pay a bunch of energy and or have elements for them. Mm -hmm. And in Jagged Earth, there was more of a shift towards there's some small amount of downside, but if you pay for it, you get some upside but a different sort of downside, or maybe one side is like a little bit of bad and a little bit of good, and the other is a lot of bad and a lot of good. I feel like it creates more interesting moments where the decision isn't just, can we come up with four energy per player, but really, which of these choices do we want? And then given that, how can we make that happen? I like that. So I like the Jagged Earth choice events a lot better. Yeah. A little less good for the rich players, bad for the poor players. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's not even just like bad and good. It's more of like, which is better for us in the game right now. Exactly. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's like, there's not so much in the way of rich and poor spirits as far as choice events go. You can use elements. Yeah. Here's the thing. The costing of the game is such that discarding a power card to get two energy towards it is a little more value than the reclaim one would be. So like you can think of discarding a power card as like I'm down a reclaim one. Reclaim one is worth about one and a half energy. And so when you discard to get two energy, you're actually getting more value Mm -hmm. than you would had you paid out energy for it. So gaining a power card is worth about three energy. If you forget a power card, you're getting four energy out of it. So you're basically netting up a whole energy on the choice event. And then if you forget it from your discard pile, then you're getting the value of the fact that you did not have to reclaim it as well. So it's basically up like two or three energy on it. Mm -hmm. So having more power cards is super good for making choice events happen. The trade-off is that spirits with a lot of energy are less well-positioned to pay to make choice events happen, but they're a lot more flexible in being able to pay for any event because energy pays for all of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true. I need someone to write me out a little spreadsheet. <laughs> like, wait a sec, this money for that card. We'll dictate what he said. We have like a mini spreadsheet somewhere of like all of the different growth choices and roughly how much energy it's worth <laughs> at certain times. Like we try and make them all roughly similar in terms of the resources they give you, but texturally different in terms of what you get. Because it's very rare that you want to press the nine energy button. And when you do, you tend to not press that nine energy button like three turns in a row. Like there's a limit to how much value you can get from nine energy or from gaining power cards Mm. or even placing presents. I wanted to make a comment on the solo play thing, and I'm not going to pretend to be a voice for the solo community out there, but I just wanted to lend my voice to why I like it so much Mm -hmm. as someone who frequently does just solo games by myself. I think, honestly, the thing I like the absolute most about the solo experience is it's not eccentrically different from a multiplayer experience and here's what i mean so many times in board gaming other games have things in place where to play it solo there's an entire new section in the rule book that involves new mechanics a new board that you tack on to the side of another board that's (laughs) usually in the game a new deck of cards new rule sets that, although similar, are a little bit different. So now I'm looking at game components in my box, and they say, oh, this is only used in solo play. (laughs) What's this token do? Oh, that's only used in solo play when you have a bot doing this. Oh, okay, well, I'm probably never going to use this because this game I have no desire to do solo (laughs) play. But Spirit Island doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure other people have a plethora of reasons why they like solo, but I love the fact that it's the same game. I don't 
have to worry about these new rules. I don't have to rack my brain with, wait, what was this? And organizing, oh, that's a solo game piece or something. I love that, personally. So one of the things that makes that work well, though, is that most games that have automata or other special pieces or rules for solo player are competitive games. It's like, it's normally this game is two to five players, and we make it work for one player by creating some sort of artificial competition in some way. Mm -hmm. Spirit Island is at its heart always one versus the automata adversary of the invaders. It's just it's one team of people that is played by one to six of your friends or one to 24 of your friends if you want something totally crazy and epic, right? And so... How long the game would be? Oh, God. (laughs) It would be quite a while. Yeah, but like you can have a team of one and the game was designed such that one player on one team has to fight one board's worth of adversary. And that was where all of the implicit scaling was put in to make it yeah. work well at any player count. I feel like it may be a little easier for other cooperative games to do things like this than for competitive games. But I do think it's important that a cooperative game like this that's really targeting single player is that it has the heavily asymmetric thematic starting position that Spirit Island has of like you have this huge diversity of spirits and how they can tackle different problems. If a single player game doesn't have a wide variety of different starting positions, it's going to be boring, I think. Yeah. Just started. Because, I mean, say like Brandenburg Prussia solo, I could choose a fear spirit and just rush the fear deck before the eight turns run out or whatever. Yeah. Or I could be like River and control everything and just blow everything up so there's not even an invader on the board. Like you said, so many different ways to fight the same game or same adversary, but just different angles you can attack it. Yeah, yeah. I think why I like choice events, Ted, is because I like like years a little rain the one where you get to remove the top fear card i like those ones that are just like are so beneficial yeah we're like oh you can do bonus grow this turn if you have enough water i'm like oh for sure i mean year of little rain is also a little too good hush 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 It's a little too good. Proliferations are tough to balance, I'm guessing. Uh, no, we just undercosted them. They're actually not that tough to balance. They are just okay. better than we thought they were. And also, presence destruction is not as bad as we thought it is, which is why growth through sacrifice ended up being really overpowered, which is that <laughs> both of those effects show up on the same card, and we got the costing wrong on both of them. And so, like, a fair cost for growth through sacrifice is probably, like, around two energy or something like this, but also, okay. like... Like, it's not an effect that I think really should be in the minor power deck. Like, minor power should not be about presence proliferation. Like, we have major powers for that sort of thing, and it's fun and exciting and splashing when it happens. Unrelenting growth. Yeah. Don't change that one. That no, one's no. good. Uh, might need an energy. Might need to cost five. Well, I mean, what if you pull at the end of the game? Like, I don't think it's that broken. It's all, like, when it comes up in the major power deck. Like, yeah. If you don't get it at the end of the game, if you're already grown, who cares? I have heard from some very high-end players that it even gets picked towards the end of the game so that makes me wonder maybe five okay i will say when unrelenting growth was first printed it was a four cost major power that only added one presence and i made a big case to eric i'm like when i think about most four cost slow majors they're gonna solve a mid-sized land like it's gonna be this land has two towns in a city in it four cost major is like more or less handled mostly cleared out they're definitely not going to blight that sort of a thing I'm like adding one presence and a wilds for four energy in the slow phase is just not doing it for me. It doesn't feel exciting. It's like lean in on this, drop two presents down, and that will definitely catch some eyes. Yeah. And maybe a little too strong, 
but it's not way too strong, right? And it creates some really good game moments. So getting back to Briny Deep creates some good game moments. Sometimes unrelenting growth, really good moments. So I'm glad we printed it. Now, one critique that players have had of the base game was that the ending or the outcome would become too predictive or deterministic. So how do you think events fix this? And do you wish that they never were invented? I mean, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Ryan, you're biased. (laughs) Do you wish that they would have been a part of the original game? Mm, That's kind of a complicated question that I feel like has a couple different parts to it. Well, John wrote that one. (laughs) (laughs) I love my events. (laughs) You know my (laughs) stance. Okay, so first let me talk about anticlimactic victory in Spirit Island. And then I'll talk about how events relate to that. I feel like anticlimactic victory is largely something that we can improve on with design, but it fundamentally happens because Spirit Island is a game where the victory and loss conditions are totally decoupled. So like loss condition is like too much blight or all of our presence get removed, but generally too much blight. And victory condition is we've generated enough fear, we've killed enough invaders of a certain category. And you can be like one city away from victory and also one blight away from loss. And that can create a moment where you have a lot of tension that's kept up through the entire game. And a lot of other games are a bit like a tug of war where the victory and loss condition are on the same axis. And if you get really close to victory, you're never worried about getting very close to the loss condition. So this is good for tension. But a drawback of this is that if the difficulty setting isn't calibrated right, people Mm. can get really close to a victory without being close to a loss. Or they can pay attention to like, I feel like I'm really close to a loss while not realizing that they are also similarly close to victory at the same time. And victory can just creep up on them. And that, I think, is at the core of what creates a lot of anticlimactic endings to the game. Now, you can fix this by playing at higher difficulty. difficulty? Yeah. Yeah. So increasing the difficulty fixes the majority of these problems. However, as a game developer, I don't get to tell everyone, you should do this to fix your game, right? Like, we should be creating a game that naturally does that. And like, what people normally want to do will feed into that. And so I think there are things that we can do to improve that sort of dynamic. And I haven't tested anything in the space because I have so many more important things to test. But my hunch is that if the invaders were stronger later in the game, you could think of it as like stage three cards were worse in some way or something like that. Or maybe there weren't as many stage two cards. If they got stronger faster, then that might make the game feel less anticlimactic as a result, as a way of pushing the difficulty. Okay, so let's talk about events and how that relates to it. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, so disclaimer, when Eric first pitched events to me, I was not a fan. Oh. However, what? Eric also pitched fear cards to me, and I was not a fan of those either, or even the fear mechanic. Now I feel like fear is a crucial part of the game. Yes. <laughs> I feel the same. It's a win condition. <laughs> yeah. It's how you win. <laughs> I don't remember what the original win condition was. It was just like always kill everything. But it was like, anyway, fear is clearly helpful. But there were a bunch of things I was concerned about with fear. I'm like, oh, the effects are random. Who knows if it's going to be good or not? And then anytime you come up with this complicated set of game mechanics of here's all the different ways people can interact with plastic. But then there's this alternate route of press this button for 
victory, you can end up with people who just ignore the whole rest of the game and press the victory button. So that was like a real concern with fear, but it turns out it was unwarranted. Okay. Turned out just fine. I was also a little concerned about events. Just I'm like, oh, kind of futzy fiddly. Who knows how random they're going to be. The purpose of events was not to make endings feel more climactic. It was that when you get to a certain point of play, you can see what the invaders are going to do a turn or two in advance, and there's no mysteries or surprises for you, and that causes tension to be lost in the game. And when people lose their tension, then the game loses its excitement. And events are, I believe, an important way of not just increasing theme, but making sure those moments still exist where you're not totally sure what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I do think they're important for that. However, there's no value in playing with events if you're not at the stage where you can already see that far in advance, right? Like if you aren't thinking ahead about like, what are the invaders going to be doing in two turns from now, then you don't need event cards to create the fog of war of what's going to happen. You've already got that. <laughs> like, and adding events is just going to feel more capricious and random in those places. The other thing about events is that at its heart, Spirit Island is a game about growth and change. The spirit you start with is not the spirit you end with. Like you customize the spirit, you figure out how it becomes stronger and what sorts of things it moves into. You can rename it. Yeah, yeah, you can rename a spirit. And I really love that. Like at the end of the game, it's like, oh, this is like Ocean Spews Fire or something like that. Mm -hmm. When I describe things like drafting minor powers in Spirit Island, it's kind of like the situation where the perfect solution to your problem is a katana, but you don't have a katana. What you have is like a gasoline-powered chainsaw and 12 miniature surgeon scalpels, and you somehow have to MacGyver this together to do the job <laughs> of a katana, right? Like sometimes the game gives you stuff, and we try never to give you a total brick, a card that you would never want. Hold a trade. There are some bricks, but not too many of them. Granted hatred. <laughs> but like by and large, you get a card that is somewhat useful in some situations and then you've got to figure out how to roll with that right so this is why when people are like oh the minor power deck is too big i totally get people not wanting to shuffle 100 card decks I wish the minor power deck were a little smaller for shuffling reasons. But people who are like, I wish the minor power deck were smaller so I could always find the perfect power cards for me. I'm like, that's not what this game is about. Mm. The game is about giving you some amount of variance and then how do you react in those situations? And so events are kind of similar in that they're making you as a player think about how can you react to the unexpected? How can you grow and change in these situations? That's cool. Yeah, because in the base game, when we only had that, I'd be like, all right, let's just keep shifting through the minor power so I can find elements of it. You know, let's just... <laughs> Because it was such a good card, and we could play it and someone else. And it was pretty good. Honestly, I think having more cards in there makes finding those ones that you like kind of more valuable. Yeah. Because you have a lower chance of finding it now, so when you do find it, and if it's what you wanted, it's like, oh, I did get it. I don't know. It was like a spark of catharsis and joy of like, ah, ha, 
I did. Yeah, it's like sometimes you're digging for a katana and you find the katana and you're like, this is amazing. It's like every time I get <laughs> yeah. rain of blood on downpour, I'm just oh, so yes. excited. <laughs> There's this other card that's two fear, isolate target sands or wetlands. Ah, oh. sucking ooze, baby. Yeah, yeah, sucking ooze. It's like, I love rain of blood so much that when I see sucking ooze on downpour, I'm excited to take it too. And I'm like, it's not quite as much fear. But <laughs> but it gets to isolate a ton of stuff. You know why I remembered that card? Because we used it in our Scotland. Scotland game, and I spammed that sucker with That's reckless so abandon. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Scotland game, Laura, you had a crazy pull with Thunderspeaker. I don't remember any of that. Wrapped okay. in wings of sunlight. We were literally like almost about to lose, and you're like, I wish I had wrapped in wings of sunlight. <laughs> no, I found that card. I was like, wow, this is perfect for downpour. I never really thought of it for downpour before today, but oh my word, can only go in Sands of Wetlands? <laughs> I can make those. <laughs> oh yeah, that is incidentally another thing that I have been pushing for in the latest generation of spirit design, which is that when you read over the spirits panel, without even looking at any unique powers, you should have an idea of the sorts of minor and major powers you're looking for mm. apart from just, I want things mm. that have my elements on them, right? Like huh. it's, mm -hmm. I like it when spirits give you a new way to think about powers. So like when you play mm. downpour, it's like, I want zero cost land targeting powers that have mm -hmm. water on them. It's like all of a sudden mm -hmm. a thing. And then like, if you're playing vengeance, obviously you're like, I want all the things that add disease into the game, that sort of stuff. But then you get other subtler changes. Like if you play volcano, because you have this implicit range boost and you always have a sacred site, all of a sudden it's like, does this card target from a sacred site or is it range zero? It's probably pretty good because the value you get from increasing a range boost from zero to one is significantly more than you get from increasing range from one to two. So those other ways of like getting a little bit of extra value out of your minor power drafts are all in there. In talking about spirit design, you say in the past that developing a good spirit usually takes about six to 12 months. And you also said it depends on complexity, which is more difficult to design slash balance, a low complexity spirit or a higher complexity spirit? So the hardest is a very high complexity spirit, for sure. Mm -hmm. Feels like always like it's like 12 months for that. I feel like if you can do a good job of isolating this is what a spirit is supposed to do and it's not allowed to be this much more complicated, the higher the complexity, the longer it takes to develop it and to balance it. And this kind of ties in a lot to what does it mean for a spirit to be low, medium, high, or very high complexity? That was my next question. What are the qualifiers? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so low complexity... We've been iterating over this, but I will say for now, low complexity means you can't shoot yourself in the foot. You would have to like actively really try to screw things up for yourself. A new player just playing this, they might not play it optimally, but they're not going to paint themselves into any corners. The spirit has guardrails in some way to make sure that things will be okay for them. And the other thing is that it will strongly telegraph the sorts of play styles that they should do. So like vital strength of the earth, like your sacred sites have defend three. What does that say? That says, put your presence on top of invaders. Where the bad guys are. It's going to be fine. Yep. Right? Like, and for whatever else the spirit ends up doing, if you put sacred sites on top of invaders at a difficulty level zero game, you're going to be okay. You're not going to get into too much trouble. 
for a medium complexity spirit, there aren't as many guardrails in there. It is possible to shoot yourself in the foot, but it mm. still needs to telegraph what the game plan is, such as like, here's how to easily not shoot yourself in the foot. So Thunder Speakers are a really good example of this. Like you can lose your presence if Dahan dies in a ravage. Don't do that, right? Save <laughs> the Han friends kill them in advance or evacuate them or whatever you do. But everything about the spirits kit is like pretty straightforward. Like you can look at all the cards and figure out this is when I should use this sort of a card. Like, oh, I should use this to move the Dahan around and my presence with it. I should use this effect to blow up some towns, things like that. Mm -hmm. The other requirement for a medium complexity spirit is that no one else at the table should need to know important details about your spirit in some way, right? So like Ocean's Hungry Grasp, as a spirit, it doesn't have a ton of guardrails, like many medium complexity spirits are, but it's still pretty hard to screw yourself too much, right? You're like, I should be drowning things on the coast, but you need to let your whole team know that they should be pushing stuff into the ocean too. And if that doesn't happen, you're not going to have enough energy to work with, right? So, or a spirit like Heart of the Wildfire, people need to know that when your presence comes down, it's going to be adding blight and the whole table is going to have to deal with the extra blight that happens from you playing the spirit. And those sorts of things I think are not good for medium complexity because the person playing the spirit might not realize that they need to share this information proactively with other players. That makes sense. Okay. So yeah. high complexity is either when you have something that you have to inform other people about, such as ocean sunk or grass drowning, or if the spirit's game plan isn't as telegraphed. You remember I said like some spirits have a neatly organized toolbox of tools like ocean sunk or grass, and others it's just like a mishmash of hammers and screwdrivers. <laughs> I feel like bringer of dreams and nightmares is a good example of a mishmash of hammers and screwdrivers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you have stuff, you're like, oh, maybe I moved to Hanaran. Do I put a whole bunch of Dahan in one land to gain a bunch of energy for a major power? Do I try and set up a counterattack? Do I fake destroy this town that's going to get built to push it somewhere else? Do I like... Yes, always that. Yeah. Always fake destroy. Get that fear. Yeah, yeah. It's like there are so many different tools and it is not clear the best ways to weave those tools together. Like the different ways that you can use those effects to further your game plan towards victory. That is kind of the hallmark of a high complexity spirit. And I kind of feel like by this metric, a spirit like many minds is kind of high complexity because- I agree. Yeah. Oh, sure. We had a vote internally about where the spirits land and I don't remember what I voted, but these days I definitely feel like it's high complexity. And similarly, lore feels medium complexity, right? I feel like it's hard to really shoot yourself in the foot. Other people don't need to know too much about what you're doing and well-telegraphed game plan means medium. Yeah. Okay. So then what is very high complexity? I feel like very high complexity is when the tactical timeline of thinking about your spirit is multiple turns in advance. Like you can't be thinking just about this turn or this turn and next turn. You're thinking multiple turns ahead. And so some of this is like starlight, like your growth pattern, like what you pick, like can strongly impact the rest of your game. Like how are you going to reclaim your power cards is like a really big question for starlight because there's several options or maybe you're not going to bother at all. Yeah, baby. And you're... <laughs> 
maybe you're not going to bother at all and you're not going to tell anyone that you're not bothering at all, but you're just going to gain new power cards, right? That's an option. We still won the game, goodness. <laughs> I wasn't in the game. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, or something like Fractured Days, right? Like Fractured Days gives you the days that never were pile because you need to like see in advance, like how am I going to win this game? Because you don't start with any power cards that do much of anything with the board. Like you start with no way to progress towards victory, but you need to know that like on turn five, I can get a black hole if I need it, right? Like I've got that sort of thing available. And Finder is also the same way, whereas like I can Tai Chi master my way to get all the invaders in one land, but I need to be like really careful about containment and then still come up with a plan for how we're going to actually finish them off. Yeah. Yeah, I don't feel like it makes sense to have a complexity level above that, though, because there isn't really more thinking that you can give a player than you need to think many, many turns in advance of the current turn that would actually be fun and interesting for people, right? Like there's kind of an upper bound in how much you can really make people puzzle through things. Yeah. Before Jagged Earth had come out, we had been familiar with the three complexities of low moderate and high but before that maybe like the early stages were there always those three were there ever more than those three i think we realized that there could be high complexity spirits that were more complicated than ocean and bringer and serpent but i don't think we realized that they could be so complicated enough that they needed an additional disclaimer on the tag mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. there are definitely people out there who can have a good time with a high complexity spirit like ocean or even like vengeance or mists which i find very tricky to play personally who are just like finder is a bridge too far and hey, that's fine good movie not all spirits need to be for all people right like we have 24 spirits yeah. in the game and we're working on more content and i don't know what i can spoil but spoilers there's going to be more spirits <laughs> and i hope that's what? not a shock to people <laughs> beep, beep, beep. Beep, beep. <laughs> you heard it here first folks <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's going to be more spirits and i think we have a pretty good scoping right now of just how complicated a spirit can get and i don't want anything that's more complicated than fractured days is my personal feeling on the matter i agree with that <laughs> so the thing is there's this question of like how balanced do we try and make everything and so like do you balance for the 99th percentile of play or the 95th percentile the 50th percentile right, right right in my mind i kind of target around 95th percentile which is to say if you had 20 people play a spirit and you ranked them from best to worst and you did that for every spirit the second best player yeah. for every spirit should be about as effective as the second best player for everything else across the board. But what this does mean is that if you have a really complicated spirit like Fractured Days, that means it is, in fact, very easy to screw things up. And as a result, you do get a little bit of reward for not screwing things up. Not very much at all, but it is legitimately harder. And that's just kind of factored into the power budget. We also don't want to come up with a spirit that is only balanced for the very best players in the world. Sorry, Discord. <laughs> it's another way of saying that everyone else who plays this spirit will have a less good time, and that's not very fun at all. Mm -mm. While we're talking about balancing spirits, so just because I love having Finder as a teammate on the board, because Finder groups up all the stuff and then my army of whatever goes in and smashes it. 
I've tried playing Finder, hated it, way too complicated, and, you know, it's just not my spirit, but John adores it. Love it. It is just crazy weird. How difficult was that spirit in terms of design and also balancing? Because it's, like, unlike any of the other spirits out there. Okay, this spirit was really hard. Fractured Days was, I think, harder in terms of total amount of time, but I think in terms of effort, maybe Finder was harder. It's really challenging. Okay, so... I have a story about when I first saw Finder's spirit mat. (laughs) I think we all do. We all have a story. We're like, what is this? When I first saw Starlight's spirit map. Mm. Oh my goodness gracious. Like Eric showed that to me. He's like, I designed this build your own spirit spirit. And I'm like, holy crap, this is so cool. We need to make this happen. (laughs) This looks like a real pain to balance, but I'm pretty sure we can do it. And we should make this happen because this is the sort of thing that makes people really excited about getting an expansion. It's like, got to do it. When I saw Finder, (laughs) when I saw Finder, I am like, holy crap, this is amazing. So I get really excited. And then a second later, my heart just sinks because I look at this and I'm like, I have to balance this. (laughs) I'm like, okay, Eric is really good at his job as a designer. And he's also really good at development and balancing things. And this was the first thing that I looked at and I thought, I don't think Eric can balance this on his own. I'm like, I have to do this. That sounds like not my problem. (laughs) The punchline is that both of us needed each other to get there. Like I couldn't have done it without him. And Mm. I don't think he could have done it without me. Yeah. But I was just immediately excited and dismayed at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) This is awesome. Oh no, it's going to be so much work. (laughs) It's like a ton. It was just obvious to me. And I don't know how clear it is why this was hard, but just forget everything about the spirit except for the presence track. When you see a presence track like this, this is this weird connected graph of things. Yeah. One thing that's obvious to me as a game developer is that you want to give people choices at every stage, right? Which means once you've unlocked a space, you're not sure which space to go to next. You want to give them like a bunch of different bonuses that are useful in various ways and who knows the best paths to take through this. And what this means then is that every step through the path that you take, mm-hmm. you'll need to make sure that at least the end end spaces all have very equivalent value in terms of the resources they provide a player, but different effects. And then you also want to make sure that for the starting paths, there's different tempo choices where it's like, if you get a burst of a resource early, then the spaces after that are a little weaker. And conversely, if you choose a weak space now, then later spaces are stronger. Like I feel like the moon in the middle is a little weak, but then the air plus move of presence is really strong after it. And so we sat down, we had two sessions of about two hours each with us staring over a connected graph with weights on them, trying to work out like for each of the different paths, like the starting paths you go through, how many resources are people expected to get by a certain point in time and trying to like shift things together to get that to work. And that's just the presence track. Okay. That took (laughs) a long time to get working. Then there's... Isolation was new. That was a new mechanic that Finder utilized. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember if Isolate was part of the original version of the Spirit or it got added in later, but it felt pretty core to the theme. One of the things that the Spirit originally had, it had the connected network of like any two of your presence can be adjacent. 
originally this was any spirit could pay one energy to have two of your lands be connected for one of their powers, that sort of a thing. Now, I personally hate one energy taxes in the game. I don't like having people have to think, is it worth spending this little bit of currency? Shadows is oh, weeping in the corner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, oh, I can't use this thing because I didn't save any energy. So I'm not a big fan of that. We'll get the shadows later um, in case you're wondering about one energy taxes. But I'm not a big fan of that. And it felt like there was enough strength in the spirit already that it was superfluous. So that got cut. But then in a later redesign, Eric said, hey, this is really important. We need to have this as part of the spirit. I'm like, okay, we're going to add it to the spirit and it's free. And we're just going to find other ways to like cut strength from the spirit. And so we cut the initial card plays to one and the initial energy to zero. And because <laughs> originally started with one energy and two, two plays, I don't remember. It was a lot more, but we cut that in order to make room for this special rule. There was also a point in development where Finder had a whole bunch of different cards that moved two pieces to other lands with a variety of restrictions. And Eric identified this problem that the spirit had, quote, all scalpels and no shovels. Getting back to this metaphor of finding the right tool, which is that it had a bunch of problems that could handle small amounts of invaders, but it had nothing that could handle a land with a whole bunch of invaders. And so he came up with the idea of pushing half of the invaders from a land rounded down, which is super great if the land has lots of invaders. And it's not great if the land doesn't have a lot of invaders. And so this was another way that the spirit could get a lot of variety in terms of its ability to deal with different sorts of problems, yeah. as opposed to just, I can deal with the same sort of problem, but move them to different lands. So yeah, that was an awful lot of work and I'm super pleased with it. The spirit itself is a little strong. It's as overpowered as ocean is, which is to say within the bounds of acceptability, but it's pretty trivial to fix the strength level of ocean and finder can't be fixed. Finder cannot have a completely perfectly neutral power level explicitly because the end sections of the presence tracks have to provide a competitive and exciting amount of resources to the players. And that's where its late game strength comes from. I think the lack of offense and fear is a nice, I don't know, nerf or buffer to the overall strength. Like, yeah, you can move anything mm -hmm. around, basically, and you can, I don't know, sling majors, but the fact that you get penalized for offense, you start with no offense, and the lack of fear really starts to creep up on you. In games, you're like, what tier level are we on? Oh, still one. Okay. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. But it's like, it's so amazing when you have Finder on your team, it's like you look away from their board for like two turns, <laughs> and then you look back, and some Tai Chi master has like routed all of the invaders in one land that's isolated <laughs> how did that happen yeah. well they've just shoved it all onto your board <laughs> that's fine too which is that's good fine. yeah this is good <laughs> you know where they are so seeing how you said that you'd prefer that no spirit is more complex than fractured is it fair to say that we're probably not going to see a complexity level higher than very high yeah yeah i don't think that is likely to happen and i'm not even sure what that would mean right okay good <laughs> <laughs> my mental yeah. state can rest <laughs> i remember just like you said with Starlight and Finder. The first time I looked at each of their boards, I'm like, this is not a board, this is a bridge. <laughs> this is not a board, this is a Scantron. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a video on YouTube of a group of people that were playing some Kickstarter prototype 
version of some of the jagged earth spirits and someone's mm. like "Ooh, starlight seeks his form that sounds like fun hand me that and she gets the spirit mat and just like oh. nope just like return to sender <laughs> <laughs> give me that volcano laura that was your reaction <laughs> <laughs> redirect <Yeah. laughs> i'll just stack up at one land thank you <laughs> do i want to spend the next five hours figuring yeah. this out no thank you my growth phase is what how many <laughs> where for what it's worth i feel like starlight is very very well balanced i think there's only one tweak i would mm -hmm. make to it which is i think kind of surprising given how many different numbers and knobs there are to tweak on it hmm. it has a growth option that deals like two damage at range zero mm -hmm. yep yeah the numbers on that are a little weak <sighs> i ran the numbers i think it's like if it's range one or maybe range two two damage during growth it becomes competitive with the alternative option like your own little artillery stack is pretty strong mm. and i do wonder if the spirit could get its base presence placement at range one instead of range zero mm. probably wouldn't break too much stuff so for the starter four spirits, and I understand they weren't legitimate actual starters because you can start with anything in the base game. Sure. But the low complexity peeps, the lightning, the river, earth, and shadows. Did you have a checkbox in mind for each spirit? Like someone that's basic for offense that players could use, someone that's basic for control, basic for defense and fear, respectively? Not in the formal sense. I will say, though, that one of the most important questions I asked Eric early on for thinking in this space was if you could describe like the thematic theme of the game. I asked him, like, is this game supposed to feel like a zombie survival movie where it's like they're constantly at you and you're just trying to stay alive and then eventually you escape and make it? Or is it like a superhero movie where it's like, I'm a badass and you're a badass and we're going to fight mm -hmm. and see who wins and I'm going to kick their asses. And he said, it's not actually like either of those. He wanted a game that was about growth where you started off a week and then you change. And then towards the end of the game, you become strong. And in my mind, this is a lot like the hero's journey archetype in storytelling, where you have someone who starts off, who's like a nobody or just not well equipped. And they get thrust into a situation that they have to deal with. And then through the course of that journey, they overcome. And the hero's journey archetype is well connected to, honestly, a lot of things in a Dungeons and Dragons adventuring party, where it's like, I have a role, I'm leveling up over time and I'm getting stronger. We're dealing with more and more challenges. And I think the checklist that we had was that for each spirit, it should feel unique and different from other people. And it should help people engage in a certain aspect of the game. Mm -hmm. So we definitely wanted something that felt protective and tanky in a way. And we definitely wanted something that was going to be offensive, like attacky in some way. And we did want something that interacted a little bit with the fear mechanic, but it was not a requirement that they needed to get pigeonholed into this simple archetype where that's the only thing that they do, right? Like shadows is a spirit that has a reasonable amount of fear, but it also actually has a lot of control in it, right? Like all the explorer movement and a little bit of town pushing is super meaningful for control or vital strength of the earth has a lot of defense in it, but it also has a little bit of explorer control and it also has a little bit of damage. Yeah. It was more important, I think, that the starting spirits felt emotionally evocative to players and that who they were resonated with them such that they could get a sense of what the play dynamic was going to be like. So keeping in line with the low complexity peeps, I'm curious, what was the discussion in regards to the aspects 
Were you always on board with this idea? And do you feel like they've accomplished what the developed team wanted for these spirits? So, yes, I was always on board. Eric was like, I've come up with these modifiers to spirits. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've never thought of that. That's so cool. And it was like clearly a really good idea. Yeah. As far as what they've accomplished and what they've wanted, I feel like, yes, they have. The question is, what are aspects actually trying to do? That was my next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel as if some people might say, oh, they're trying to fix mistakes. I don't think that's fair. And some people would say, like, oh, sometimes it's just there for fun and a way to explore new ideas that's on the foundation of something that exists. And I think to an extent, both arguments could have a degree of salience. That was going to be my follow-up question, in truth. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little closer to the second some of this has to do with like the nature of what does it mean for a spirit to be a spirit. So like, let's talk about vital strength of the earth. The spirit is not just a thing that is associated with the earth in places that it is vital. In the lore, it is very literally the vitalness of earth. Everywhere on spirit island that there is earth that has a quality of being vitalness, vital strength of the earth is definitionally there. That is what it means for that spirit to be that spirit. And so an aspect is talking about all the other pieces of a spirit that are also thematically true. So like lightning mechanically plays as this like fast attacking spirit where I like blow up buildings all the time. But lightning is also a spirit of wind. Wind is always part of what lightning is about. And the mechanics of base lightning don't do a good job of thematically conveying the windness of lightning swift strike. You got the special rule. Yeah. And so the wind aspect for lightning is a way of exploring. This is another thing that is also true about the spirit. Mm. Lightning swift strike is also a spirit of immensity. It is a thing of great power. And that's why you have an immense aspect that lets lightning play with major powers because thematically it should be allowed to do that. But the mechanical structure of the base lightning just make that kind of impractical. And so it is about exploring things that are also true about the spirit that could not be encompassed on the first design panel release of a spirit. And in some sense, this is theoretically true for pretty much any spirit that could be printed. There are always thematic aspects that couldn't be explored. Now, I will say that I feel like aspects get increasingly harder to design the more complex a spirit gets, right? So like an aspect for river is pretty easy, relatively speaking, to make because you're like, oh, well, I can swap out this special rule. And like, if you lose the special rule, it doesn't hurt too much of the kit, or maybe this innate turns into that innate. Mm. But the more complicated a spirit gets, the more the tools in its toolbox relate to each other in heavily interlocking ways. And if you pull out one piece, then the rest of it might structurally not work, right? So like, what would an aspect for fractured days look like? (laughs) Think about that. Like, would you not be able to make time anymore? That would like screw up everything. Or like, if you have time, is it spent in a different way? Like, maybe you could come up with a different innate for the aspect where instead of spending time to accelerate and reclaim power cards and replay them, it could spend time in a totally different way things like that. Or like, what would a finder aspect look like, right? It's still a spirit about connectivity. Could you replace that special rule with something totally different? It's very hard to do that. Mm -hmm. In contrast, an aspect for Thunderspeaker seems not as tricky, right? Thunderspeaker is always going to be a spirit that's focused on Dahan, but it can lean in in different ways to what that means for the spirit. So a year ago, John posted a meme to the Spirit Island Reddit (laughs) 
about one of those low complexity spirits that has since gotten an aspect. In the meme, there's like, you know, the couple laying in bed and the girl's thinking, I'll bet he's thinking about someone else. And the boy is thinking to himself, why couldn't shadows start with one energy instead of zero? And that's totally not a situation why that's played out before. Why couldn't it? I mean, I always think that in bed. I'll be honest. <laughs> All in good fun. And you actually replied, it's such a long story about shadows. Maybe we'll get to share it someday. And we've talked about shadows here on the podcast. And uh, I feel like now's a good time to tell us about why shadows started out so darn poor. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Gather around, folks. Gather <laughs> around. Yeah, this is an interesting story and also relates to why is Keeper overpowered. Mm. So two for one storytelling. I'll get the popcorn. <laughs> okay. So one of the things that I realized late in the base game development was that the special rules for Shadows this effect of like pay energy to let your powers target any land was a really cool special rule for a medium complexity spirit. Mm -hmm. It's not at all good for low complexity players because the last thing a low complexity player needs or a new player needs is a special rule that just graphically opens the search space. It's like, you mean I can do this in any land, anywhere on the board that has the Han on it, but I can pay energy for it. And like trying to decide when is that worth doing when what you really want a new player is I have my presence here on the board. I can handle the things near my presence. It just shrinks the field of view in a way that makes it a lot easier for people to just engage with the game and play with it. Mm -hmm. But I really thought this idea of like, I have infinite range as long as I'm acting where the Dahan are acting is really cool. I mean, it's so cool thematically with the lore of just like shadows is around the campfires, you know, this like the dancing shadows. It made sense. That was my first spirit I played. I really took to that special rule. Yeah, yeah. I really like it. The special rule is the special rule one would have for a medium complexity spirit. Okay. It's not great for low complexity. It's not great for the first time you're playing the game. Okay. So I basically haggled back and forth with Eric over the course of a couple months of us being like, well, could you do this special rule instead? Where I tried to like come up with like, here's a different sort of shtick. To be fair, none of my ideas were actually that good either. I think the aspects we have in place that give shadows better special rules are way better than this. Yeah. And towards the end of that, Eric basically agreed that it would be really good to have a different special rule, but we were also out of development time to come up with one. So it was better to print something that at least had been tested a bunch and wasn't like horribly broken. Now, all of the time that I had spent trying to come up with a better special rule meant that I hadn't spent as much time trying to figure out like exactly how much energy the spirit should get, exactly how many card plays it should have. So I had some proposals for that, but those ended up kind of being off and we didn't have enough time to fix those either. There's also a couple other things that kind of went wrong so I feel like Shadows ended up with a bunch of cheap power cards with range zero targeting in part to make the special rule more meaningful. It kept the one energy cost to play it because I was worried that if it was free, then that opens search space even more. Yeah. Then at least there's turns where you have no energy and you can be like, okay, I don't need to think about that special rule. And long story short, enough dev time got spent trying to come up with a better special rule that there wasn't enough time to balance that. Now, as far as how this relates to Keeper... Keeper ended up being the last spirit I took a really serious look at in large part because I was spending a whole bunch of time on shadows. And <laughs> because of this... One thing leads to another. Yeah, so one thing leads to another. Growth 4. Well... I did some testing of it, and I'm like, I think Growth 4 can be one energy cheaper 
turns out was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back. <laughs> yeah, in retrospect. But increasing the cost of the fourth growth doesn't actually fix a lot of other core dynamics in the spirit. So the spirit has a couple other things at play, which is that it's very hard for the spirit to get into blighted lands and deal with invaders in them. Yeah. It doesn't have enough tools in its kit for that. But also some of its unique powers are overcosted by an energy each, but you don't notice it when you have a massive energy income. And additionally, if your game plan is then going to be get major powers and hope your major powers can deal with that land, then you're kind of circumventing the core plan of the spirit of like, how can I create this slowly encroaching wall of sacred sites to get the invaders off of my lawn? The spirit interacts with wilds, but wilds tend to evaporate rather quickly when explorers just try to explore there. Like you can't really predict when your wilds are going to stick around. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it hard to use wilds as a tag for power effects that power them up. In contrast to a spirit that uses beasts, you're pretty sure the beasts are going to stay around in roughly where you left them most of the time. Yeah. So that ended up being tricky as well. And so there's all these other pieces of like some overcosted uniques, some undercosted growth effects a lot of trouble getting in lands where invaders are. It kind of all averages out to screw all of that. I'm just going to get energy and go for major powers. <laughs> right. But if we had more time, we could have done a much better job of making it possible to get into lands with invaders and not giving you too much energy, stuff like that. With that all being said, I think the aspects are so beneficial to Shadows, especially Amorphous. If we're talking like what oh, yeah. special mm. rule, like that is so thematic, Amorphous. Like Reach is fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Reach is easy, right? Reach is a new normal, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Reach is super good. Ryan loves Amorphous. Oh, Amorphous is so good. I do wish there was a different set of unique power cards for Shadows, though. I almost brought that up when you were talking about the difficulty of making aspect cards for these spirits, yeah. because one of the things that lends to the difficulty is the fact that you have to make it make sense for the character while also taking advantage of the already pre-existing hand of cards. Yeah. Now, we know that in Sunshine River's case one gets chucked but still like majority of the time you're keeping that hand yeah. so how do you make it different but using the literal exact same cards yeah so like it is totally possible to have an aspect that swaps out a unique power card oh, yeah. right that has like different elements or leans into things in a different way it's a little tricky because generally speaking special rules are relevant like 95 percent of the turns in the game Hopefully almost every turn of the game, your special rule matters. And your innate tends to matter like two thirds of the turns in the game, more so as the game goes on. But each of your unique power cards sees play in about one out of every three turns. Mm. So it's possible to make an aspect that is just, this is a different unique power card that you play with, but there's still the issue that the power card might not come up enough to make things feel really different. But there's no reason that you have to be locked into your initial starting hand. Mm. as far as aspect development goes. I think one quick patch. Here's my game designing, developing idea for Shadows. Sure, let's hear it. <laughs> All right, what if... Ted, talk with me here. Here we go. <laughs> what if we just add Shadows of the Burning Forest to Shadows Flicker Like Flame's hand? Add a fifth card to the hand to the unique powers. It's still very thematic. It's still the range zero, so you can still target a land with the OG special rule. And then I think with that extra card, you can delay that reclaim, so then you can go a little bit top track you hear what I'm saying? So what I'm curious about is what's your objective here? 
Are you trying to make shadows feel a bit more in line power level with other spirits? Or are you trying to come up with a spirit that better matches low complexity? I think it still matches the low complexity. I don't know. Because it's a base game card. Right. And it's a cheap card, so it's zero. And it matches elements. And then I do think it would bring up the power level a little bit. Because you're delaying that reclaim, you can get to the one or three energy on the top track a little bit. I don't know. I understand that starting with a fifth power card does increase a spirit's power level. What I guess I'm asking is, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Because Shadows has many problems. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think it's just the the energy track. Yeah. I think it helps the energy track, and then it helps you get that fire element that you don't have in your base hand that you're trying to get, you know? So... To trigger that innate... From that perspective, what I'm hearing you say is that you want the innate should be easier to hit, and you're basically trying to find a way to have a smoother early to mid game. Yes. Well, I think that's what Shadow's biggest struggle is, is like the first couple turns with you're at zero to one energy. I mean, I feel like the most direct way of handling that would either be reducing element thresholds for the innate. Certainly the last level should be less expensive than it is. Or add an element somewhere on the energy track, maybe on the second or third spot. I've seen that one, probably the most suggested on message boards. Yeah, but like the total number of structural changes I would make to Shadows is significantly more than any number of suggestions that people have made. Second edition. <laughs> like I would change half the power cards, the special rule. <laughs> we'll change it too much because I do like Shadows, Ted. Most of the energy track and the growths. I think I would change the growths as well. Okay. I was about to say, I could see that being a really good target for improvement yeah it's fine and like the other thing is if there's ever a second edition no guarantees that shadow is a low complexity spirit in there right like maybe we decide shadow should be a medium complexity spirit with this rule that lets it target to han yeah for free it doesn't have to charge energy for it and we structure the innate and the uniques all around that and we come up with different low complexity spirits for a second edition that is a thing that could happen i'd be on board yeah i mean i don't know what's going to happen because i don't know if there's a second edition but it sure would be great <laughs> if that happened. Foreboding's great, so I'll just say that. <laughs> I just play foreboding and I have fun, so it's all good. <laughs> foreboding is pretty good. Yeah. So you've said in the past that earth element-focused spirits, that's a sentence, <laughs> have stronger reclaims than other spirits in the game. And why is that? Is that a thematic thing? And did this idea come about when you were developing vital strength of the earth? So it is a thematic thing. A lot of the real core anchoring theming stuff is from Eric, like pretty much all of it, right? Like Eric is the person who decides what's really thematic. Okay. And this is the thing he pointed out to me. He's like, earth spirits are supposed to have stronger reclaims. And when I thought about it, I'm like, oh, duh, of course that makes sense. The reason is one of the things associated with the element of earth is constancy and repetition and being the same. And so mechanically like repeats are part of that, which is part of why vital strength of the earth has an innate that gives repeats. Mm -hmm. What this means is that Reclaim All is stronger on Earth Spirits. A lot of Earth Spirits get to add presence as part of this. Because what that means is that you don't have to exhaust your whole unique powers in order to get maximum value for presence placement. You can reclaim at any point in time, still get presence placement down, and then that encourages you to play the power cards you just played already. So it causes a more repetitive sort of play. 
Now, the flip side of this is air spirits. Air is the opposite of earth, and air is, among other things, the element of the mind. So it's about creativity, learning, and new ideas. And this is why air spirits are more likely to have like more than four unique power cards, right? So like Finder has six power cards, and Many Minds has five. Now, it's not a requirement that you have to be an air spirit to start with extra power cards. Sometimes it just kind of makes sense structurally for the spirit to have that sort of a thing. Air spirits also have weaker reclaim all, right? This is why tricksters reclaim all is not the greatest of all because it doesn't like doing the same sorts of things that it already did before. Mm. So there's a lot of thematic things in the game where a certain element is associated with a certain type of thing. So for example, sun is the element of command and ordering. There's a lot of like call to X cards that move the Dahan in various ways. And a large number of these have sun on them, right? Because it's kind of a command in a certain sort of way. Anyway, the game is just like sprinkled with all sorts of thematic connections between an element and a mechanical effect that's embodied in a certain sort of way that's hopefully encouraging people to play in a way that feels aligned, maybe even in a subconscious level of like, that feels like what an earth spirit would do. It would just do the same thing over and over. Got to keep playing a year of perfect stillness. <laughs> That's why, brilliant. Yeah, it's why it's my favorite game. Like this game is so many levels, so thematic. I wish I could take credit for it. I mean, this stuff is all Eric. Eric is quite good at his job. Yeah. <laughs> But it has certainly been good to be along for the ride. And as you guys were designing, did you foresee lightning and river becoming such a strong combination? And also, do you think it's the strongest in the game? Oh, I wrote this question. I like these spirits. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think we necessarily foresaw that they would be a really strong combination. I feel like when we looked at most pairs of spirits, they seem to have some sorts of interesting synergies. Mm -hmm. And we knew that some spirits are going to be stronger than others, like river and ocean together are going to be super strong. And that's fine. That's thematic. And we like it when that happens. And the amount of strength doesn't seem like too much in any of those cases. It feels good, but fair. As far as the strongest combination, I'm pretty sure some of the people who have done the double six adversaries have been using a four spirit team. Please forgive me if I get this wrong, but it's Fractured Days, Vital Strength of the Earth, I think with Might. A spread of rampant green, and I think serpent as the four. Okay, but like yeah, non-cheese combos. Come on. No, no, no. <laughs> but let me talk about why this is, which is that Fractured Days gets to repeat power cards. Yep. As does Vital Strength of the Earth. Hmm. And you know what the best thing to repeat is? Anything that's undercosted. And you know what's undercosted? Gift of proliferation. <laughs> Right. So like the best combination in the game is always going to be whatever takes advantage of the most undercosted thing and tries to play it as much as possible. <laughs> Spam the cheese. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. Up serpent, get them to 17 energy a turn and let her sure, rip. Something like that. Yeah. But other than that, I don't feel like any duo or triple of like normal-ish combinations seems particularly stronger than any of the others. That's kind of my feel. That's good. Good design. Maybe it's just more about like which ones you're good at playing. I think so. Because then you know how to oh, play yeah, yeah. well, and then you play them together and you're like, this works really well together. Yeah. And a lot of this comes back to this question about Overwatch and like, you should be able to play something that feels like it resonates with you and how you want to interact with the game. Find the characters or the spirits that are meaningful for you. Okay. Yeah. So I've seen multiple people ask the difficult question of what is a personal favorite spirit and i've even been asked this question and i find it incredibly difficult because it's almost asking me like what's my favorite food 
Like, okay, it's almost impossible to answer because so much of it depends on the mood I'm feeling that day. But I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> but I'll narrow it down to at least give you some framework here. So looking back at each of the expansions and the core base game set, each set of the game, whether it be the base or the expansions, do you have a personal favorite spirit from each of those? So, like, yes and no. Feel free to have as much liberty interpreting that as you wish. Yeah. So the short answer is no, but I will give an answer anyway. Like, if <laughs> Hey, if that's the Ted we know. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to carve up the spirits a little differently, though. So I'm just going to do the base eight spirits as one. Sure. Jagged Earth spirits as another, and then all the Branch and Claw and Promo Pack spirits as a third set. So, yeah. Uh, which feels like a reasonably sized grouping. Yeah, sure. No, that's okay. totally fair. Ted, you sly dog. Now that I have the benefit of hindsight, I can see what you were up to. You combined Branch and Claw with Feather and Flame, but you worded it this way since it hadn't technically been announced yet. Now, I see what you did there. Okay, so from base game... I think Ocean. Ocean is really, really well designed and not too far off for balance, but just like something about the play dynamic is so compelling mm. and exciting. And it's a spirit that even if you're not playing it, you're excited to have it on your team. <laughs> A spirit like Grandpa Green, you do feel like you're taking over the island with vines, but it's not in the same way that like I'm drowning these cities and eating them for energy and then using that to fuel some crazy major power, like I'm sinking part of the island or things like that. It's just so good. Mm -hmm. It's really, really well done. So I feel like I have to pick that. For Jagged Earth, I feel like there's a lot of good choices here, but I'm going to have to give it to Starlight as just a cool, flexible design. Like, yeah. I really like all of the different ways you can build Starlight. And it's not so much about like all the different growth options, though those are interesting. But I feel like when I play Starlight, any triple of innates is like an interesting set of things to lean into based on like, okay, I'm going to try and do like a plant moon sun build this game, or maybe another game. It's like, I'm going to do air, water, and animal. And it can play totally differently, even if the growths you picked were the same each time mm -hmm. between those two games. Like It's just a really fascinating spirit to play. And each innate is so viable, like you were saying. Mm. Like, they're all useful in different games. Oh, yeah. The design of this was really, really tricky. One of the problems we ran into early was that there were some synergies between some of the innates. So like one of them did a good job of moving to Han and another did like damage per to Han or something like that. Mm. And so you'd end up in the situation where the optimal build was always Earth, Animal, Moon, because the combination of those innates as they were written at the time gave you really strong to Han synergies that was more value than the individual effect you'd get from any other subset. So we worked really hard to make each of the effects not have synergy with any other effect. Anyway, it's totally interesting because normally when you're designing a spirit, you want to have all sorts of cool synergistic effects. And this is yeah. exactly the opposite puzzle. Like, how can we make sure there's no synergy, which in turn will make every combination equally viable? <laughs> it's super replayable, too. Yeah, yeah. But is it good for beginners? It is good for beginners. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. I but must <laughs> respectfully disagree. 
<laughs> okay, it's, yes, I told you. It's overwhelming at first, but as you play, you're like, okay, I'll get a plan here. Sure, if you have the context of knowing how the game works, but when you're a They're beginner, you're like, I don't like, even I know what fear is. I don't even what? know the assumptions. Okay, I, I had in mind that they have the base game, so they know the basic rules, and then they get to Starlight. But that's no longer a beginner. That's an intermediate player. Yeah. We're talking about beginners. They don't even know how this stuff Earth, works. Probably an intermediate. You player. at least had the base game. You have to work your way itself way through a couple of the spirits. It's a funnel, Starlight's a funnel. It turns into a moderate as you play Starlight. But they're just going to be crippled by what the heck do I do at the start? Life's tough, kid. <laughs> Mister... I can't wait to parent with you. <laughs> okay, Mr. Lightning is too tough for beginners. Oh, the slow phase and the fast phase are confusing. But Starlight is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That does not add up to me. Next question. <laughs> I haven't answered my promo pack. Oh, yeah. Favorite yeah. <laughs> I think among promo packs and Branch and Claw, this is a pretty tough choice between both Downpour and Finder, which mm. I love in a variety of ways. They're so good. I feel like, though, I have to give the slight edge to Downpour. Mm. And the reason is... Screw Branch and Claw. <laughs> Downpour has a little more variety of play experience. Mm. When you play Finder, you always end up with a whole bunch of invaders in one land, and then you look for some mallet to bash that land with. Or <laughs> yep. better yet, someone else finds that mallet. <laughs> Even <laughs> better. <laughs> look at this huge pile of treats I've made for you. Right? <laughs> and like the game plan is always kind of about that. But at least with Downpour, sometimes you get random cards with water as miners that you don't normally take. You're like, well, I guess I'm adding four disease in this land or something mm, like that. Yeah. Or the other thing is major powers. Cheap major powers repeat well on Downpour. And it is not as important that they have water on them mm. it's like it's more important if that card works with your game plan and so it's like all of a sudden okay how many times do we need to wrap the dahan in wings of sunlight this game three times okay we're gonna do that <laughs> that's a thing that downpour can do yeah i would just really appreciate those sorts of experiences so but there's a lot of good choices in all of these sets i would say so I kind of like how you combined the set of Branch and Claw with the promo packs. But when mm -hmm. looking at all these three, let's see, you said Ocean for the base, mm -hmm. Jagged Earth, you said Starlight, and then for the final set, it was Downpour. So with the same group, let's flip the question. Which one do you hate? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, least favorite. Better wording. <laughs> or that word. <laughs> so for least favorite, some of this is like, this could be interpreted as which spirit do I feel like is furthest from the sort of design vision that would make me feel like it was a very well-designed spirit, or which spirit would I have the least fun playing as it is printed? Yeah, and you can answer this from any angle you want. Mm. I'm not very picky on this. This is kind of for silliness anyway. <laughs> okay. I would say probably least favorite for me to play is Shadows from base. The nerve. And not because of power level. It has very little to do with the power level. It's the fact that I don't feel like I'm engaging in a coherent mini game mm. for what I'm trying to do on the island. It's like if I'm playing lightning, I'm going to blow up buildings. If I'm playing river, I'm going to put all the invaders in a land. 
if I'm playing Shadows, I'm downgrading things at random and maybe gathering some explorers in and then who knows what, right? Like, I don't feel like there's a game plan there that I'm... And advancing the fear deck, so you're keeping a bottle on the invaders and you're rushing the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yeah, so if Shadows were overpowered, like, if you just added two energy and a card play to Shadows tracks, it's just like all energy numbers were two bigger, all card play numbers were one bigger. I would still call it my least favorite spirit. Okay. It has nothing to do with the power level. Similarly, talking about the set of promo packs in Branch and Claw, my least favorite would be Keeper for kind of the same reasons. That I don't feel like I'm really engaging with a coherent gameplay plan that feels thematically resonant for me. It is more thematic than Shadows is. It just doesn't really like quite hit it for me. Mm. For Jagged Earth, my least favorite spirit to play, and also my least favorite of all time, is Fractured Days. Really? Oh, God. I would rather play Shadows than Fractured Days. Fractured Days is the reason that we have this rule now. What's that quote from Pirates of the Caribbean? It's more what you'd say, guidelines. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's more this guideline that spirits need to have a well-defined relationship with invaders, with the Han, and with other spirits. Fractured Days doesn't have a relationship with invaders right? It doesn't have one. And that means it doesn't have a game plan for advancing the game. And so we had to give it the days that never were piles so that you can kind of construct one on the fly. Mm -hmm. And when you play the spirit, there's so much complexity that I feel like you can't really do a good job unless you like quarterback out everything with everyone, because you don't have a plan to advance things. All you can do is support other people, which means you need to know exactly what they're going to do and whether it's going to be useful. I feel like the spirit encourages quarterbacking in Spirit Island more than anything else. And I happen to not like that play dynamic on either end of things. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how to play Fractured Days well without that. Like, I don't know, maybe someone could do it. Like, just sit down with Fractured Days and like, I'm just going to play some power cards and we're going to see if it's going to work out. But it's probably going to be a train wreck. (laughs) (laughs) But that said... There are people who really love the spirit and it took a very long time to develop. And I am glad we got the spirit printed for the people who love it. Mm. Spirit Island is a better game for having that spirit in it. Mm -hmm. So it is great. Just not for me. Nice. And the artwork is phenomenal. Yeah. It is super great. I love the artwork for it. I think you're right about quarterbacking because I like to play Fractured Days. I think Mm -hmm. I just like to more listeners be aware of what people are doing. So I'm like, okay, you're doing this. I can help you repeat that. Or I can like, you need to to get an extra card play to trigger an eight. I don't know if that is quarterbacking, but I'm just like, I'm trying to be aware of what everyone's doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So for me, it's a little bit like, I like playing Serpent with new players. Yes. First time people playing the game even. Yeah. However, the one cardinal sin is asking, do you need a thing? Mm that like you can't engage new players in figuring out what sort of support that you need because they don't know right like your job as a serpent player in a game with like three other people playing is you just like watch like a hawk for everything yeah figure out the mistakes that they're making and then find the right power card to bolster them out of that situation sure be like oh how about you get an energy and play a power card would you like that like <laughs> oh, i don't know if i have any it's like well that one costs one why don't you do that why don't you do that like would you like an extra minor power this turn yeah yeah something like that oh it's like lightning how about you get a minor power i just thought you might want one no reason (laughs) (laughs) with newer players are they like hesitant to the absorbing of presence or like oh no i want my presence or i need this sacred site or no 
Yeah, that's a little tricky. You bribe them. You were like, oh. I'll get you an energy. I can give you an energy, and then this element will help you trigger this innate Okay. if you give me this presence. Yeah. But you need to make sure that they're getting value out of it. Definitely. And so you could play Fractured Days like that the same way. It's one of those things that most people, when someone else is playing Fractured Days, they don't want to also have to play Fractured Days with you while they're playing their own spirit. Mm. That does not sound like a good time. Right. Because I played Fractured Days. I try not to quarterback when I do it. I try more just like gauge the room and like who's playing what. Oh, does yeah. anyone want to slow power fast or play an extra card player? Well, this is part of the cooperative discussion I always felt was just like, Hey, y'all, I I'm am triggering someone this. who is capable of helping you. Yeah. Tell me in what way I can best help you. Kind of like the overcooked example. Mm -hmm. Just like, all right, because my growth options give me an element, and those elements are incredibly impactful to what I'm going to trigger with my innate this turn. So, what does everyone need? Let's talk. And so, that's just, oh, yeah. that's just like the part of the spirit phase I always thought. Oh, yeah, so... Overcooked. One thing I love about Overcooked is that it caps out at four players, and it is one of the few games where the optimal number of players is five, where <laughs> you want someone playing the manager or the PM role. They don't hold a controller. They just look at everything that's happening and shout orders. And it is actually more efficient to be like, we need more we cabbage. Need John, get more cabbage and start chopping yeah. it up. And like, That's a great right. idea. It's like kitchens actually work that way. Yeah. You got somebody who's just like running around being like, you do this thing. You need to do that thing. You do that. Yeah, yeah. It actually plays better with five people than four. Babe, uh, hey, let's try dude, that. Dude, Ryan, let's try that. You will have more success in the game. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just think that's kind of genius that the game design worked out that way. So I'm curious, when you're playing the game for funsies, not just for like the purposes of, okay, I'm going to play this game to get more playtesting things for a spirit that you're currently developing, but just playing for fun. What is a difficulty level that you preferentially like to dwell at? I would say pretty typically around nine or so. Nine feels like I should always win. I should probably flip the blight card. That seems pretty likely. And I still have to work for it, right? Like I can make some mistakes, but I can't make too many mistakes. The thing I have been doing a lot, though, is mixed adversary stuff, because like mixed adversaries is not necessarily about trying to punch the difficulty up to 15 or whatever it is. It's about being able to get different flavor experiences of adversaries at any level in the game. And so you can do things like, I'm going to play England 4 and Scotland 1. Mm. And you end up with an adversary that feels mostly like England, yeah. by and large. But it's got a little bit of that Scotland vibe to it. You're like, oh, okay, all of a sudden, like all of the coastal explorers are adding towns, which then interacts in an interesting way with England, just for example. And, you know, this punches the difficulty up. So it's probably about as hard as England 5 or so, but it has a very different vibe. And you can do like Scotland 4 with England 1, like mix and match however you want. Mm. And you get a really, really wide variety of adversary game plans that you can target for whatever difficulty you want to play it like do you want to play a difficulty five okay that's fine try france two brandenburg prussia one right i don't know if that adds up to five but it just feels about right sure so yeah scotland pairing with england and like anything that'd be tough <laughs> that would be a rarity <laughs> you could do scotland one england one there you go right 
that's going to be fine, yeah. right? So now we're just haggling over numbers. Yeah, but Scotland and England, they uh, they don't combo. get along quite well. I'm not talking about the game. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, just like talking about adding difficulty. I think the extra board is really cool because then that even mm. ups the cooperativeness. Is like this is no one's starting board. It's like this is the team starting board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially if you're like playing two players and there's a third board. I think that's a cool way to up the difficulty and, and doesn't like change the rules overhead. I don't know. That's been yeah, cool. Yeah. I like the extra board. I really like Archipelago, actually. Yeah. And I have had this question come up a lot of like, I want to play a new player game with six new players or something like that, or even like four. I'm like, that doesn't sound good at all. But <laughs> the advice I generally give is play Archipelago. And the reason is that if you're just looking at two board islands, it's so helpful for new players to be able to just focus in on this is my area. There's some yeah. cooperation there. You yep. still have some way of getting to the other island if needed, but just not having to think about this like vast landscape that you're kind of stuck in the middle of is really helpful, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I love Archipelago a lot. I really had a lot of fun with that too. I remember when we did our oh, first yeah. game of it. It was really fun because you feel like you're part of this big experience. Mm-hmm. The way we had ours structured, it was a four player game. We just had two small islands. Mm-hmm. Two boards and two boards, yep. two pairs. We had a newer player with us, and so it was important for them to be paired with a experienced player, but still be among yeah, yeah. like this big team. I thought it worked great. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. I actually pitched two three-board islands as the canonical layout for six-player, mm. but they're like, hmm... Maybe having to explain archipelago rules was a little too much, but I do think it plays better than one six-player board for sure. Yeah. Mm. We thought, and this is just a complete curiosity, that Lure's growth option to send it four away was in part because Archipelago was a thing. And so you would need to make sure you had compensated for enough so that they could, in fact, get to an inland land of another board if the coastal lands are going to be two away from a coastal land. That is correct. Nice. That was exactly why. Now, it is not a hard rule that every spirit needs to be able to. Sure be able to cross archipelagos, but you would need a very, very good reason to not make that possible. Hmm. It should be obvious reading from the spirit panel why you would never want to be able to be on a different island. Yeah. And I can't think of any spirit like that right now. Cool. Here's the question I want to ask. From the data that you've accumulated over the years, from maybe opinions that you've seen vocalized by players or maybe in person or something, when players love a spirit, do you think that the love for these spirits stems from their power level, maybe how thematic a spirit is, maybe how well it clicks with them a bit? In my experience, it can be a combination of any number of these. I'm just curious what your opinions are as someone who is much more responsible to parts of the game itself than me, which would just be a consumer. You actually have a hand in all this stuff. So I'm curious because that kind of information I could see be a factor for maybe future design. Yeah, so I actually spend a lot of time thinking about what excites people about Spirit Island content, right? Like, As a podcast listener, I imagine a lot of people may listen to your podcast to think about like what's fun and exciting or like what are new things that I haven't thought about. And what I'm listening for is what do other people find fun, right? Because like I want to understand everything that all the different players are really engaging with. Mm. Now that said, 
I think the thing people like the most is when something is very thematically engaging and is slightly overpowered in a way that they are unaware of. Like if you look at the highest voted set of spirits for like most popular, it's all things like ocean, super thematic, a little too much fear, right? Does pound ships, the splinters really need that much fear? No. No. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Does not need four fear. <laughs> yes. Well, it's actually not four fear because you very rarely trigger four fear. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's the second level of fear that triggers too frequently. Okay. And also defend four two fear in a coastal land is too much, right? It should be one fear, but that's fine. But it's just like when you play lightning, you just get a little bit of extra fear. You're just a little closer to victory conditions in a way that you're not even really aware of. You're like, I'm just following the instructions. It's said to give me this much fear and it's fine. And I'm drowning everything. That's great. <laughs> Things are going a little better than expected. Mm -hmm. Thunder speaker's kind of the same way. Like it's got this good shtick and just a little too good at being able to blow some stuff up. <laughs> But it's not like if I had to redo anything about Thunderspeaker, I would cut Manifestation of Power and Glory. Like, I want a power card that is like, you get a bunch of Dahan and Presence in a land and you do a bunch of damage. Like, that is exactly what it should do. Maybe it shouldn't do 60 damage. <laughs> but maybe 12 is a fine amount of damage for it to do, right? I do feel like if a spirit isn't thematically resonant with a player, they won't like it no matter how strong it is. And Keeper's a good example of this, which is not to say that there aren't people who like Keeper. There definitely are, but there aren't as many people who like Keeper as there are people who like other spirits that aren't as strong. And that is telling. And on the other hand, if a spirit is a little on the weak side, then people just don't like it as much, no matter how interesting and compelling its minigame is. This is not exactly Sharp Fangs. I think Sharp Fangs is quite balanced, but it doesn't do a very good job of telegraphing some really important things, notably that you should be trading in your presence for beasts more often than not. Like two thirds of the turns, you should do that. And if you don't do that, the spirit's going to feel weak. And as a result, people aren't going to be able to engage with the spirit as much, even if they're totally excited about the idea of like, I have a roving pack of panthers that are going to eat everything, right? Or not knowing that special rules even a thing. <laughs> or just not reading yeah, the special I mean, rule. It's easy to miss that. <laughs> Please read your special rules, kids. <laughs> They're important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Has any spirit really surprised you based on the popularity from players? You were like, oh, I didn't think that one would be that liked by everybody. Okay. Not really, actually. I feel like everything that's printed there's going to be someone who's excited about it, right? Like, so for example, I am not a big fan of mists. It hurts my head. Just like I hate positional mini games and like structuring everything. But I saw the spirit and I'm like, someone is going to like this spirit. Same as Fractured Days, right? Like Vengeance. Vengeance is a super hard spirit to figure out how to play. And Blight is good? <laughs> yeah. It's not that Blight is good. It's that the penalty for having Blight in play is a lot lower than it is for other spirits. Right. And that changes the trade-off. Whereas like other spirits would be like, I'm willing to spend three energy to solve this problem. And Vengeance is like, I'm only willing to spend one energy to solve that problem because <laughs> if I don't solve it, I get a Blight, which is a Badlands. And <laughs> disease right and i'm sure that like the people who figure that out and love the spirit were going to love it i was sure that every spirit would have its own fans 
So Aww. seems like the new big favorite based on Dragon Earth and our polls and what I've seen is Lure. Lure is like the yeah. favorite right now. Yeah. Lure's also a little too strong. Yeah, Lure was the keeper of Jagged Earth. <laughs> it is nowhere near as strong as Keeper. No, no, no. I'm not saying they're identical. Just yeah, yeah. strong spirit. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure where to trim power from it, but my best guess is like there's this power that's like one damage per token in the land, max five damage. Yeah. Like, does it really need to have a max of five damage? <laughs> well, with Badlands, it easily goes above five. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime I see a unique power that people are like, I never, ever want to forget that. I'm like, that's probably a little too good. Mm. And on the flip side, you never want a unique power that people are like, I always forget this, right? Like what you're really hoping for in unique power design is something where players really don't want to forget it, but will if necessary, uh, right? Yeah. Because you want to give people something that's like pretty good, but you don't want to give them the absolute best they could find because you want there to be hope that in the minor power deck, I find a minor power that's even better for me in some way. And you never want people to feel like I can't even afford to take a major power because I could never forget any of these cards. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So I know you listen to podcasts like this, listening for the feedback of players to see what they like, what they don't like. But when you're scrolling through BGG or Facebook or Reddit, what kind of posts about Spirit Island just make you smile and just kind of make you as a designer or as a fellow player or as a person just be like, oh, that's really nice. <laughs> or make you laugh. I get excited about? Yeah, for me, games are fun, but they're not just fun. Games are about connecting with joy. They're about experiencing joy and sharing joy with a bunch of people. And so the posts that I most like are about people sharing their joy of like, I just got this and I'm so excited and I love this. Or I had this great moment with this power card and like, it's usually cast down in the Brining Deeps and it's getting a token. <laughs> but like, it could be insatiable hunger of the swarm of like, I thought this card was terrible and then I drafted it and it was amazing. And like, check out all of these beasts and light that took over my board. Moments like that or like, I finally beat England level one. I'm so proud of myself and my fiance. Posts like that. And like, when people are happy and sharing that, I feel like that makes the world a better place. Like, I like designing and developing games. Some of it is about like, I just like that sort of thing. And I like games and I want people to have more fun, but it is ultimately about giving people positive emotional experiences. And when I hear that people are excited, that makes me excited to make more content for them. Is that an advice that you would give to like future game designers, game developers is like to really capture that joy that you can share with other players? Yeah, I think that's one thing, which is that it's really important to emotionally connect with your players. Like you need to figure out what is someone else going to be excited about? It's so easy when you're doing game design and development to design something that you like. And that is not a good market, right? That is one person and you don't get a sale off of yourself anyway. Like <laughs> if your goal is to make a game that other people want to buy, then you really need to connect with what's exciting about other people. And you need to be able to make content that you think other people are going to love, even if it's not your thing at all, right? Like I needed to play Fractured Days and make it an awesome spirit for the players who love it because that was important to them and important for the game, even though I didn't particularly care for the experience myself, but I made it happen. As far as more general advice for game designers, 
I'm going to channel a little bit of something I got from Eric, where he said that you want to think about the scope and the purpose of what you're designing. Like, did you make a game? Then you are a game designer. But oftentimes people have larger aspirations than that. It's like, do you want to make a game that is fun or that you like or that you can play with your friends? Maybe you want to make a game that's commercially successful or a game that is highly rated, or maybe you just want to make a game that you can print a hundred copies of and you and your friends can have some, right? Like understanding the target of what you're trying to do will help you focus on the type of problem you're trying to solve. Like if you're trying to get rich making board games, like you want to make the next Monopoly, but the way you make a game that sells a lot of copies like Monopoly is very different from how you make a game game that is highly rated on Board Game Geek, right? Like, I don't know, like Star Wars Rebellion is a game I like. It's a top 10 game on Board Game Geek. It has not sold anywhere near as many copies as Monopoly. And the designs for these games are totally different. So understand what you're trying to do first is probably the first step towards doing a good job of design. Feel free to never make another copy of Monopoly out there, everyone. That game sucks. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do just fine. I have a story about that. So there's this thing that like most people, when they play Monopoly, they will play by house rules. They did some research and realized that Mm. most people like don't even bother reading the rules in the back. But there's some rules about like when you land on properties, they get auctioned off. Yes. So many people don't do the auction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, free parking is just a space where you don't owe rent. You don't put extra money there. And it turns out that if you put a whole bunch of money on free parking, like maybe from fines or maybe every time someone lands there, it's an extra 500 bucks, then too much money gets added to the system. So people don't go bankrupt, which causes the game to take longer than it should. Right. So there's all sorts of things that like screw up the balance of this game. Now, if you sit down and play Monopoly with the official rules of the game with a bunch of game designers and developers, which I have actually done, the game is still awful. (laughs) (laughs) that's the joke of the show (laughs) (laughs) it is actually still a bad game it is not as bad as the monopoly of one's childhood but it is not good by any means oh my god well said (laughs) well spoken however It has made at least tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars for the publisher. So they obviously got something right. Hmm. Everybody likes novelty Monopoly. Friends Monopoly, Office Monopoly. Very much a different time and setting and environment for board gaming when that came. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, I want some some crumbs, some nuggets. Is there anything (laughs) you can tell us about a future expansion for Spirit Island? So, not much. Okay. John... Don't get us sued. There's not much that I can officially say. What I can say is that we're working on a bunch of stuff. In particular, Eric has been working on a very Dahan-focused expansion for some time now. And there is additional work on another expansion that would likely come out before the Dahan-focused expansion. And the last thing is that there is intent to come up with some reprinting of the first two promo packs in a single box at some point in the future. I like that idea. That'll make a lot of people very happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really great idea. So like, especially with the global shipping crisis causing increases in costs, like fulfillment of very small things is a huge pain. And if you can have a bigger box with more content in it, then that's super helpful. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anything about this, but I'm hoping 
hoping that if this is the sort of thing that makes it easier to fulfill in foreign countries, then that may also lower the cost for people in all parts of the world that want that sort of thing. There's no timeline known on when that's going to be. Mm-hmm. And basically what that means is if you want promo spirits now and there's promo packs available, you should get them from Greater Than Games. But hopefully there will be more easy ways of getting a hold of that in the future. All right. I'm hopeful for that. Yeah. Any other projects you have going on besides the expansions of Spirit Island? I guess I talked a little bit about some other board game stuff. So mostly Spirit Island is taking all of my game dev time. Okay. As far as recent stuff, last year I had a board game designed by myself and my wife called Phoenix Syndicate, which had the unfortunate effect of getting released right around the time of COVID, which made it, Mm. (laughs) yeah, that was a little awkward, but not really planable. So my publisher says it demos really well at cons, of which there weren't any. (laughs) (laughs) No, apparently the reports are like extremely high conversion rate to like someone plays a demo at a con to they immediately run and buy the box. And just some caveats for people about the difference between this and Spirit Island. So the Phoenix Syndicate is a very traditional competitive Euro style game for two to four players. Yeah. So if what you like about Spirit Island is that there's a wide variety of very interesting tactical choices and interesting ways that like you want to do five different things, but you can only do one or two things in Mm -hmm. this situation, which do you pick with like really tight game balance, then Phoenix Syndicate has that sort of thing. It is a traditional Euro, which is to say the theme is not super strong. You are still effectively getting cubes and turning them into points through a variety of rules. If what you like about Spirit Island is like, I get to be the ocean, the Phoenix Syndicate is not going to get that sort of vibe (laughs) for you, (laughs) just to be upfront. But if you like games of the form of like Agricola or Caverna, Mm -hmm. then I would say check it out. All right. Future stuff that I'm working on. I still have this rework of Titan in my back pocket sometime. Maybe something will come of that. And I have two other designs that I'm thinking about. One thing that has really inspired me about Spirit Island is that I've realized just how important thematic integration is in a game. Like people really feeling like their gameplay is embodying whatever vibe the game is purported to be about. So I have a couple projects that try and lean more into theme for board gaming, but I think those are several years out from any sort of publication. So I won't say more than that. We'll be looking out for those. We all love theme here. So I must know, what is your favorite food? (gasps) Oh. And favorite color. (laughs) Oh, and favorite color. We asked Eric these. (laughs) I know. Since I asked him, like, oh, I got a no Ted's. Favorite food. Let's see. I mean, I do love food an awful lot. (laughs) If I didn't have food, I would die. (laughs) Okay, so that's true of many people. (laughs) (laughs) Most! Okay, so my favorite food is a Chinese dish called ma pao tofu. It's a very spicy Szechuan dish. And I picked up a love for it when I lived in the Los Angeles area, where they have some very good Chinese restaurants. Mm. It shows up on a lot of restaurant menus at Chinese places around the world. And I live in Boston, and it all sucks. (laughs) I don't want any of it. (laughs) It's not as good as Los Angeles Chinese food. I'm sorry, Bostonians. I love a lot of things about your city, right? I live here for a reason. (laughs) But your mapo tofu is not up to snuff. (laughs) But the chowder. What about the chowder? (laughs) 
John, that's stereotyping. There is actually some good chowder in Boston and also a lot of bad chowder. So I spent a couple of years being disappointed. And then I realized it's like, well, I should be able to cook this myself. So then I spent another couple of years looking at recipes on the internet and like culling between them and like basically perfecting my own Mapo tofu recipe such that I can make something that's, I feel like competitive with what I could get in the Los Angeles area that I can make on my own. But it took a couple of years to actually come up with the recipe. We'll be over in a bit and have some. (laughs) What was the name of that again? Mapo tofu. M-A-P-O tofu. I like spicy, so it sounds good. Yeah, it is f***ing spicy. (laughs) Favorite color? Oh, probably teal. Ooh, that's a good one. It's an energetic and happy color. But I love all of the cool color jewel tones, like bright, vibrant, and somewhere between like green, blue, purple. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. As evidence by shoes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I don't have any teal shoes here, but I have a couple of them. Dude, your shoes are fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Shoe game is strong. I know. It's good to have advice. <laughs> you were showing us before the show. They're so cool. <laughs> yeah, my shoe game is quite strong. Best shoes I've ever seen. <laughs> Well, this was fun, y'all. Yeah, it was good. It was fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah. I hope that you didn't mind putting up with all of our silliness and yeah. shenanigans. No, it's fine. Ted. Five hours seems about right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good time. Good time. Well spent. All right, yeah. That is time well spent, I think. All right. See, that's the joy about podcasting. Many times in life when you know a lot about a certain thing or you're passionate about a thing, you make the claim, oh, I could talk about that for hours. But we never have the time in real life for that. Yeah. Well, in the world of podcasting, you do. So we actually can. <laughs> yeah, you do. You talk for hours about that. And I love listening. So much wealth of knowledge. It's awesome. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I'm not out of stuff to talk about, mm-hmm. but probably out of questions. <laughs> <laughs> for today, anyway. Oh, oh. For today. Yeah, yeah. Part for one. T- well, someday we'll have more expansions and then there will be more exciting stuff to talk about there. <laughs> well, until then. Officially, thank you so much for joining. And until next time, y'all, we'll catch you guys on the flippity flip. Peace out! Bye! Good night. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Unless you're listening in the morning? Who cares? (laughs) I listen on my drives to work, Ted. Hey, everyone. We really hope you enjoyed this episode with Ted Vesnes. We had a great time, and I'd like to publicly thank him once again for lending his time and his voice to this episode to make it happen. We love getting to learn new things about the game, especially about the history and thought processes that went into making it. Hey Ted, let's do it again sometime. Before we go, however, I want to bring something fun to your attention. We will be joining Handelabra Games next week for a live stream of Spirit Island Digital. That's right, you can see John and I in action at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time next week on Saturday, March 5th. So mark your calendars. We'll try our hand at the multiplayer beta. So if you have some time next week, feel free to come on and stop by. I'll leave a link to their Twitch channel in the description of this episode. Once again, that is Saturday, March the 5th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're looking forward to it. That's all for me today. Remember to stay safe, stay healthy, and stay awesome. I'm Editing Ryan, and I'll catch you guys on the next one.